WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 280. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the APG Headquarters building in Roswell, Georgia. In today's episode, we're going to talk about some recent news. Uh, KC-130 crash in Mississippi. Um, An Airbus 320 receives hail damage. We have a lot more news, plus your great feedback and a new Plane Tales episode. Wooden Wonders and Aluminum Overcast, Part 1. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 280 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news, kind of focusing on the airline world for the most part and of course your great feedback and more goodies as well and joining me today from the carolinas doctor 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 and a marathon runner a skydiver and the honorary <laughs> Miss World 2017, <laughs> Dr. Steph. And I really should thank Carlos for that title. I think he's the one who he bestowed the one who that uh, <laughs> wonderful title to me. So, um, yes, thank you for um, hosting another wonderful show this evening. Um, good to be back, as always, for 280. Looking forward to a great show tonight. And, yeah, let's get started. Absolutely. And also joining us from uh, not too far away from where I am right now in the Atlanta area, a former regional jet pilot and now current Acme Airlines mainline first officer, soon to be captain. We call him Captain Dana. Good evening and good afternoon and good morning, wherever you're listening from, APG listeners. Great to be back. Another fantastic show with uh, with uh, Jeff, Captain Jeff, and looking forward to another fun evening. So we're going to have a good time. We're going to have a good time. And, of course, we can't forget our Airbus representative. A wide body Airbus captain. He's normally in the London area, but tonight he is in Northern California. Joining us, Captain Nick. <laughs> you, you, why do you choke up every time you say wide-bodied there, Jeff? I don't know. <laughs> He's trying to put the adjective in the right place, but it's yeah, just... I still haven't worked that out. <laughs> hey, hi, everybody. It's uh, it's great to be here. I'm I'm uh, sitting here with Fred on. We'll get it and introduce him in a minute, I'm sure. Uh, just climbed off the airplane. I'm still uh, hot, sticky uh, after an 11-hour flight, and uh, uh, my body clock is screaming at me that it's time to go to bed. But I'd much rather stay here and chat to you guys. 
Well, we're so glad that you are going to do that. And uh, you just mentioned him. And here's our special music for Fred Sampson. Yeah, he's been on the show before. He is a an extraordinary pilot out in the Northern California area and works in um, technology and other stuff that uh, we really don't understand. Joining us tonight, Fred Sampson. Hey guys, this is great. It's finally great to get to host Nick here. So Nick, welcome to Northern California. We finally managed to get this done. I'm hoping to see a lot more of the, I saw Jeff a couple weeks ago and then Steph and Dana, you guys are invited to come down here anytime you want. So there's plenty of IPA and sunshine and flying. So anytime you guys want, we're here. Fred yeah, we got some heat. Thank you. Not representing the West Coast on the show very much, Fred. We're doing our best to make up for it. We did. And contrary to what people in San Diego might say, the Bay Area is still on the West Coast. <laughs> At least it was this <laughs> As far as we know. Yeah. As far as we know. Although the Antarctic uh, ice shelf separated and uh, is floating out there somewhere. So you never know. Yeah. Well, we, we, we have a joke here, right? We say, do you guys know what Northern California is? No. So Northern California is San Francisco. Napa, Tahoe, and Vegas. That's Northern California. That's what we claim. Vegas? And, <laughs> and Las Vegas? <laughs> we just claim it because that's, what, that's the only four places we go if you live in San Francisco. Ah. I just thought it was the place where our traffic was called NorCal. That too. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so glad that uh, Fred was able to pick up Captain Nick from the airport. And uh, so I'm assuming, uh, are you over at Fred's place right now? Uh, yep, absolutely. He's got a beautiful apartment here, and uh, I haven't had a chance to have a look around because as soon as we got in, we set up so that we get uh, going. And he tells me he's moving out in a couple of weeks, so uh, this is probably my only chance to see it. Oh, the only time an APG crew member is going to actually see Fred's place. Oh, well. Absolutely. We're going to immortalize this in APG history. Yes, this is the last <laughs> yeah. podcast from this apartment. Take a lot a lot of pictures. <laughs> if, you guys, if you guys see me again from here, I have failed in life and I've given up. So, yeah. so Fred, I was looking looking out the window behind you and it says and needle what's the first part of that business <laughs> it's it's tuft and needle it's a, a mattress store that's right across the street oh tuft yeah. and needle okay yeah. and that's that's actually a billboard and they do change it so i'll come oh. home one day and it'll be heineken and i'll come home the next day and it'll be tuft and needle so <laughs> that reminds me of uh, seinfeld of course most everything in life reminds me of seinfeld uh, where they, the, 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 what was it? The, the chicken, uh, Roy Roger. No, not Roy Rogers. Um, uh, what's the name of the actor? Um, shoot. <laughs> anyway, there's a chicken place and a celebrity, uh, had, um, a restaurant, a chicken restaurant, and they moved in across from, well, never mind. This is an aviation show. Let's move to <laughs> aviation related topics. I didn't wonder where that was going. I, don't, I had None no idea. None of us idea. were quite sure. Yeah. <laughs> the people in the chat room know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> don't I'm you? Sure do. Yeah. Anyway, you know what? I still am disconnected from the chat. We had some technical issues here at APG headquarters. We lost internet and now I don't get to see the chat. Oh, well. Well, someone said Kenny Rogers chicken. That That's was it. My man, Micah. I got and little Jerry's. Yeah, Thank if you. you. If you want to have any, any information about food, he's the man to ask. Oh, no, no, no. Let's let's not talk about food in the no. chat. Right? <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, hey. <laughs> Sorry. Talk about food. That's me. Absolutely. So, uh-huh. uh, Dana, what's been up with you, man? Uh, nothing. Uh, uneventful uh, trip. Good. Went to, well, was it uneventful? If I'm not remembering much, it's pretty much uneventful. But uh, flew a great guy. Um, 
he's going to retire. And guess what, Jeff? What? You're moving up, number. Ooh. He's number six on the airplane. Moving on up. Moving on up. All right. He's retiring early. He's uh, going to go out by the end of the year, beginning next year. He hasn't Mm -hmm. decided, but uh, a great guy to fly with. Unlike some other people I know, but uh, anyways, he- uh, Can you talk about me again? No, no. You're a great guy to fly with. (laughs) I never said that about you. Okay. And I've never flown with Captain well, Nick, not, so not I don't for his know. face, no. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard. I've heard things. <laughs> yeah, and I recognize your writing uh, in the bathroom. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, so. <laughs> Uh-oh. Oh, no. is, it, is it my signal that's no. pooping out? No. Or is it Dana? Do something, though. I, oh, boy. What? You're not going to be happy about this, Dana, because he upgraded his uh, internet. Yes, <laughs> but it's it's kind of like faltering. That extra fifty cents an hour, um, <laughs> it wasn't worth it, Dana. No. Actually, it's an eight dollar pay cut or, or price cut. Oh, well, you should have oh, paid well, more. <laughs> you mean you made it worse? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm supposed to have five five megabyte five megabit upload. <laughs> Well, you're not right now. You're all fuzzy and we're getting like every other word. So we'll let your uh, internet catch up with you. And I'm sure it's going to improve after everybody stops watching Netflix and Hulu (laughs) in your neighborhood. Um, Let's see. (laughs) Steph, what's been up with you? Well, I also improved my internet, so knock on. I'm afraid to even mention it. (laughs) Don't don't talk about it. (laughs) Well, just moving on better. I didn't. I didn't pay more. I didn't pay less. It just got better. You just got the the upgraded modem, right? Exactly. Which I was supposed to do a year ago. So let that be a lesson to everyone else. Um, When they send you a letter and say, hey, we can upgrade your equipment. Um, No. Yeah. Equipment. Take that seriously and and, uh, take them up on it because it makes a big difference. A huge difference. Let's just say. Yeah. You look great. The signal is super strong. That's awesome. And I've done nothing else exciting this week, so that's that's my one okay piece of news. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, Captain Nick and Fred are are having a grand time over there. I can see him in the video, just laughing. Are we having our own private uh, podcast here? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, other than uh, just arriving in into San Francisco, Captain Nick, anything interesting happening in your week? Uh, let me think. Uh, did I New York? Got home two days. Uh, jumped back into an airplane. Oh, uh, oh, I have to carry just a few uh, medications with me you now because of my age. A lot of them, uh, you know, just to keep the dementia at bay and uh, stop the shakes. <laughs> so uh, I, I picked up at the airport. <laughs> I pitched up at the airport and looked at my flight bag and uh, my supply that was going to last for this trip. Uh, and I went, oh, uh, that's not there. So um, <laughs> quick phone call to my lovely wife. And uh, yes, they're at home. And yes, she's getting in their car. And yes, she's going to drive all the way to the airport and deliver them to me. But I've... <laughs> Anyway, it's a long, long story short. I managed to organize the uh, ground staff to pick him up from my wife as she came to Terminal 3 and uh, deliver it to the airplane, and I managed to get on. So that was Tick VG, very good there. Um, nice flight out, very good, very smooth. 600 worked moderately well. I think this is the one they might have unmothballed. Um, 
to run for the summer because <laughs> it did have a few uh, hiccups, but we, we got through them all. We managed to get everything working in the end, more or less. And uh, then, uh, of course, I haven't been here for a long time, so it was really nice to do an approach in here. Uh, I was uh, 30 miles out at uh, 8,000 feet with flap two out. Is that normal? <laughs> for San Francisco, it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going, what? You want you want 180 knots and I'm 30 miles. We're gonna well, you know what we're gonna talk about approaches for, into San Francisco, San Francisco and tonight. apparently Charlotte, North Carolina. So all yeah. oh, right, okay. <laughs> anyway, I'm doing S turns and I'm like I'm still 30 miles from the airport doing S turns and all sorts of stuff and I'm going well for you all right then. Anyway, they uh, they lined us up eventually on some sort of a runway and uh, we did a fine a fine touchdown one that I was uh, moderately proud of uh, and. Was it the uh, which which approach did you fly? Uh, it was an ILS two eight right, which oh. is fine for me. Okay, so it wasn't one of but those visual approaches that. then. No, 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 I was I had briefed uh, either an ILS for two eight left, which is common for us, or the quiet, quiet bridge, bridge. Yeah, quiet, quiet bridge visual visual. Yep. So I briefed both those, and did, of course didn't do either. <laughs> <laughs> That's classic, isn't it? Yes. So as usual, 10,000 feet, we're trying to slow up, put flaps out, and I'm trying to rebreathe the runway. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. But uh, then we jumped on the bus, and because we're so keen, new, flight time had been long. I knew I was a bit late in. I didn't want to hold everything up. Uh, Fred and I are texting madly as I'm heading towards the hotel, and he says, are you using that app Waze? to uh, transmit my position to him on the bus. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says, you're going to go right past my house. Stop the bus. <laughs> so we're, we're on the damn freeway, like 50 feet in the air. And I'm good. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Anyway, when we pulled off the freeway the next turning, I said to the driver, stop, let me off. And he looks at <laughs> me like, what? Bad. <laughs> anyway, I jumped off the bus, grabbed my suitcase out the back, and then the bus drove off, and I realized I was in full uniform, standing on this really grotty street amongst a bunch of fragrants who were all looking, this bloke with three bags and in full uniform, uh, he looks tasty. <laughs> 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 he's more crazy than we are. That's what they're thinking. Exactly. This guy so thinks I he's a pilot. <laughs> and I beat feet for the nearest intersection where there were some people uh, to protect me. Lovely San Francisco people, normal people. And then two minutes later, Fred pitched up in his uh, supercar that sounds like it's got like 10 cylinders and uh, a thousand horsepower under the bonnet. And uh, whipped us around his place. He broke my neck twice uh, with the acceleration. <laughs> Very nice car. Uh, he'll Fred likes to it, drive fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, he's, he's muttering all sorts of things about going flying tomorrow, going here, going there. We've got the aircraft all day. Yeah. And so I just can't wait to find out what's going to happen tomorrow. Oh, I'm sure you're going to share it with us. I'm sure it's going to be a great time. Oh yeah, I'll tell you next week. We'll try to shoot some video too. We got we got some some fun stuff planned for tomorrow. We'll see what plays out. The weather plays nice, but we uh, we should have plenty of fun. We have the whole I'm, day, so it, it, it should be really really fun. Yeah, excellent. All right. Well, um, I uh, got a chance to uh, meet up with one of our listeners. Uh, he sent me a uh, uh, yeah twi- a tweet and a said, twit, <laughs> a twit. <laughs> something entirely different and he said hey i'm going to be in atlanta 
Uh, this is Stuart Thompson, by the way. He's up in Edmonton. He's sent feedback in the past. He's uh, originally from Scotland, and he lives up in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And he said, I'm going to be in Atlanta for a Metallica concert. And if you're around uh, the airport on Monday morning, I'd love to meet up, have breakfast, coffee, whatever. And I said, well, uh, let's see if we can figure out. So uh, he sent me this. He says, it was a pleasure to meet you on Monday morning at Atlanta T6. Figured I'd man up and drop you some audio feedback. It's my first time. So I hope everyone can understand the Glasgow accent, which has been living in Alberta for nine years. My week is just getting better. Started with meeting you yourself at Atlanta, then transitioning or transiting to Dallas Fort Worth, where I have a 13th floor view of the runway at my request as I attend an IT conference with IBM. And then after a long day today, I had a beer at the bar and got chatting to Andrew, who turns out is joining Acme AA tomorrow after a long military career. So we have a new APG recruit. I told him about your podcast and figured I'd get some audio feedback for the next show. Thanks to APG, I now talk to random strangers about flying. (laughs) I've, yeah, sorry. I've attached both recordings here. uh, So uh, we're going to listen to them right now. So. Here we go. Good evening, Captain Jeff, APG community, Dr. Steph, Captain Nick, Miami Rick, wherever you happen to be. We miss you. Jeff, just thought I'd drop a quick piece of feedback here. I haven't done it before, so I'm going to try and slow down when I'm speaking because I'm so excited in the week that I've been having so far as a uh, frustrated pilot and uh, ultimately relegated to the ranks of a general aviation plane spotter. Um, Jeff, you and I uh, met on Monday morning in Atlanta uh, just after 11 a.m. where you graciously did the whole Forrest Gump thing and ran to meet me at uh, T6 to get my Mad Dog flight when I was connecting to Dallas from Atlanta. Uh, We'd been talking, as you know, Jeff, uh, via Twitter uh, for a few days. I told you I was going to be down in Atlanta uh, seeing Metallica the previous Sunday evening. And I said, you know, I'm going to have four or five hours in Atlanta. You know, if you're around, love to buy you breakfast or coffee or whatever. And, uh, you know, it turns out that uh, I was late and, you know, you were running late. And, you know, nothing was agreed or, you know, set up. But uh, to Captain Jeff's credit, he was texting me all the way in from Demarta public transport system on his way from his home in a northern Atlanta suburb into uh, Atlanta airport. And, uh, you know, Jeff, I didn't actually think that it was going to work, that we were going to meet. Um, been slightly skeptical because I'm Scottish, you know. But uh, ultimately, uh, it was fascinating that our inbound flight crew were actually delayed coming from where they were supposed to be coming from. And uh, you turned up just in time as my flight was about to board. And uh, can't thank you enough, mate, for actually making the effort to do that. You know, I'm pretty sure you're busy with, uh, you know, your upcoming flight and all the things that you have to do uh, with that regard. And so it was great to meet you on Monday morning. Had a quick chat, had a quick selfie. I was, as you know, fairly hungover looking because uh, I just had my ears blasted to death by Metallica on the floor tickets that we had very close to the main amplifier. So, uh, but, you know, I had a quick chat about stuff. The interesting thing, Jeff, which you don't know about, and I can't even remember if I, I tweeted this or not, 
Um, when I was in the queue waiting to go on the aircraft down the jet bridge after you disappeared off to go and get your flight, um, there was a Spirit Airlines uh, captain right in front of me. And of course, you know, being Scottish, I had to say hello to him and ask him what he was doing and where he was deadheading back to and why was he doing it and give me your whole life story. And uh, so he was very nice and uh, had a wee chat down the jet bridge, you know. As we were turning right into the cabin after the stewardess had said uh, good morning to us, uh, he nudged me in the in the shoulder and said, the feds are on this flight, he's getting his check ride. And so, fascinating. So anyway, we sat down, I'm like halfway up, just over the wing, on the mad dog, going to Dallas. And uh, so on the announcement comes the captain. And, you know, Jeff, you're always talking about cockpit communication to the people in the back of the cabin. And so we had uh, this guy who came on and gave the life story of both pilots, how they were both F-16 and F-18 pilots, um, you know, what their career history was, why they got to be where they were. And it was fantastic. I just wish I hadn't uh, had taken some recording of it, but my phone was kind of stuck inside my laptop bag up in the cabin uh, overhead bin, you know. But I thought, you know, well done to you. That's fantastic. Obviously, you're doing that because you're getting a check right. <laughs> right. So I was going through my head that probably most people were kind of looking at each other just to say, why is this guy telling us his story, right? But, you know, I absolutely appreciate the fact that he said, you know, we've been flying fighter aircraft. And you know what? We know what we're doing. And uh, well done to him, you know. So fast forward, arrived in Dallas, and I'm sitting here on... Uh, in the Hyatt Regency overlooking a fantastic view of the runway on the 13th floor in room 1349, which if you go and Google this in terms of the Hyatt Regency corridor layout, you'll find it's the most extreme top floor right wing view that I could possibly get just to get a decent view of the planes landing and taking off. Uh, the front desk thought I looked a bit weird when I asked them, but I said, you know what, I'm a frustrated pilot and plane spotter I just want a decent view of the runway. And so they kind of laughed, and it was it was cool, you know. So fast forward to today. It's Tuesday here about 8 p.m. Uh, I'm going to shut up in a minute after I tell the rest of the story, but I had a fascinating encounter tonight uh, just after dinner here. Long day here at the IT conference, and uh, got chatting to the guy next to me at the bar. Turns out he is a retired, let's call him, Acme AA Airlines. And... Uh, he is an uh, ex-military, ex-fighter, craft uh, pilot, um, ex-tanker guy, ex-helicopter uh, rescue <laughs> pilot. Um, we've got a lot in common, actually, in, in other areas of our life. And uh, we were just sitting chatting at the bar there for like an hour and a half, and he told me his whole aviation story. And uh, it was really just fascinating to... You know, see how what he's doing, what he's been doing in terms of aviation, uh, what he's going to be doing in terms of the whole uh, South American gig, which he's just about to get involved with, and actually is almost like a replica of Miami Rick. So, uh, Andrew, if you're listening, I think you will be, but you could be the next Miami Rick. Uh, you spoke with a great deal of authority, and uh, it was great to meet you. Jeff, I'm going to try and tack on that recording in a meaningful way to the end of this feedback and I hope you guys enjoy it. I uh, will try and polish up my voice recording skills for the next time I do it but uh, keep up the good work guys, love the podcast 
and uh, over there here from Dallas. Cheers. He sent a uh, a picture from his um, room uh, view on the 13th floor and a beautiful view of what looks like, I don't know if that's the west side or east side of DFW, but anyway, whatever side it is. Uh, it's a it's a gorgeous view of the airport and runways and taxiways, et cetera. So um, and that was his first audio feedback. And he said he was going to try to improve it. And guess what? He really did. This next one was him at the bar uh, interviewing this uh, new APG potential APG member. And uh, let's hear what he uh, had to say here. Hey, Captain Jeff, it's uh, Stuart here from Edmonton. Uh, I'm going to send you some separate feedback about our meetup in Atlanta at Terminal 6, which was uh, very gracious of you and enjoyed uh, meeting you. But uh, I happened to be in Dallas this week, you know, doing my IT thing at another conference, uh, staying on the 13th floor just to get the plane spotting room with the view. Then I came down after a long day being an IT geek and uh, having a beer at the bar. And I bumped into this gentleman beside me who's been uh, great to share some information with me. And uh, I'll let him speak for himself here and introduce himself. Hey, Captain Jack, this is Andy. I'm uh, headed back to the uh, commercial world of uh, Acme Airlines uh, after uh, 27 years in the military uh, and a slight diversion to uh, TWA. Little uh, stint in Kuwait coming back in 2001 from uh, that, and I got a nice letter from uh, an airline that said TWA is no longer in existence. You got to go find another job. So I went back to the military for a decade of uh, flying rescue helicopters and uh, KC 135s and a little drone work in Africa. And now I'm uh, headed back to the uh, airline world. I'm pretty excited about it. Going to be flying 767s here in another month. And I just heard about your podcast. Looking forward to hearing it. Awesome, thank you. You know, Jeff, it's funny, I hear all these guys doing these uh, interviews uh, all over the world and uh, the U.S. and uh, Spain and Africa. And so it was a pleasure tonight to be this chap and uh, share a couple of beers. So, uh, you know, I'm Scottish. We don't normally talk to people at the bar, you know, but uh, <laughs> it's a great place to uh, have a chat tonight. Anyway, love the podcast and I'll check in again soon, yeah? Okay, bye. It's uh, Captain Jeff. Captain Jeff, not Captain Jack. Okay. He got the airline right, though. So. Yeah, he did. <laughs> Partial credit awarded. You know what? He probably couldn't understand Stuart's um, Scottish accent, which Ivor says sounds terrible. <laughs> I sounds okay. I spent 10 years living in Scotland. It took me nine years to get used to it. <laughs> That's what uh, Jilly said about. Oh, never mind. <laughs> uh, anyway, so yeah, it was a, a, a great pleasure. Um, a very brief meetup with uh, Stu and uh, hope to uh, meet up with him again uh, in the future. And thanks for taking the time to send in the feedback. And I love your accent and I can understand everything. So I love it. Um, yes, Liz says, Captain Jack, Jack sounds like a cheap rum. <laughs> yeah, so does Captain Jeff. Well, uh, the cheapest, right? Yeah, the cheapest. Uh, let's see. And I'll put a picture, uh, the picture that he took from his hotel room in the show notes. Very cool. And the picture, the, the selfie that he the took of us. Guy. Yeah, very, very nice. Very tall guy. You and uh, Stu and Captain Nick would be like eye to eye. Uh, let's see. Um, Jim, I, I uh, this is a four-day trip I just got back from today. Left on Monday morning. And on Monday... 
I was supposed to fly just one leg up to Minneapolis and ended up in Omaha instead after Minneapolis, but who cares about that? Uh, we came in, and uh, before I left, Jim Olson, uh, who uh, is an APG community member for quite some time now, um, sent me a message uh, via Messenger and said, hey, uh, saw your schedule. Looks like you're coming into Minneapolis, and uh, that's not too far from the gate at which I work, and uh, so I'll, I'll see you there when you get in. I thought, okay, that's great. And we were taxiing into gate G21 at Minneapolis-St. Paul, and I'm looking around at the people on the ramp thinking, okay, where where is Jim? Where is Jim? And I thought, okay, I should be paying attention to this guy that's uh, marshalling me into this gate. And then I got a little bit closer and went, oh, that's Jim. He's marshalling me in. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun, Jim, for you to uh, marshal us into the gate. And it was a, a pleasure talking with you briefly while you or while I was there in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul on Monday. Um, on Tuesday, I was in Baltimore and met up with some folks from the APG community, as well as uh, some of the people um, from Acme also joined us. And uh, one one of the people that came uh, early on Cosley uh, wasn't able to stay for the entire meetup because he had to get back. He had a meeting that night. He's a pastor uh, for a church, and uh, he said that he could only be with us for a short period of time. And so, Cosley, I'm sorry, we didn't. I, I didn't think to do the audio recording before you left, so um, that's why you're not hearing him in this piece of audio feedback. Feedback very quick. Hey, we're at the Dempsey's Brew Pub and Restaurant in. Uh, Camden Yards, and just for a quick meetup, First Officer Craig, he'd, he'd like to say something, I can just tell. Do I? All right, uh, I guess so. Uh, hey guys, it's First Officer Craig here, uh, just having a good time here with the other guys, and uh, just, uh, yeah, good beer, good food, good company, and just hanging out, that's all I got. That's all you need. You might recognize this guy's voice. Hey everybody, it's the voice of Slack. No. <laughs> Jeff brought a whole bunch of friends here from his uh, Acme flying days. Um, FOs and captains from the planes that came in with him and the planes that are leaving with him. And it was great to have a lot of fun. It was a really small crowd, which is nice. We had one guy come and go. It's too bad. He's a very nice guy. And um, next time he's in your town, you should hook up. Take care. Yeah, you don't have to say anything, Andrew, if you don't want to. But just say hi to the folks listening to the show. Hello. Okay. He takes directions very well. Andrew's uh, been only with uh, Acme for a short period of time, but uh, he was uh, flying the B-1s in the uh, Air Force, so we've been talking to him about his experience in the uh, Air Force, and it's really interesting. And this guy you really don't want to hear from. Now, this guy that's about to talk is uh, Gary Donato. He um, and I used to fly together quite a lot when he was a senior first officer, had uh, a good time uh, on several layovers, great pilot. Now he's a captain, and here he is. Yes, I really enjoyed flying with Jeff, except for the fact that he used to make me shine his shoes uh, before the next morning. Other than that, it was the only thing. I, he said it was in the FOM somewhere, and I couldn't find out where it was, but I always had to shine his shoes. But other than that, I always enjoyed flying with Jeff. Jeff's a great guy, and he brought us out here for uh, little adult beverages and some snacks, and it was great. So uh, everybody in Radio Land, say hi. That's uh, FOM Part 3. Uh, not too many people know about that special part of the operations manual <laughs> and then my first officer for this trip james good afternoon everybody uh, enjoyed flying with jeff and thanks for having us yeah well, great uh, you guys could come out i told him hey i'm gonna we're, we're having a little meet up here and if you want to come and 
have a beer or two with us and talk aviation, you're more than welcome to. And I'm very happy that all of you guys showed up. That's great. All right. That's it. Short and sweet. All right. As I said, short and sweet. That's it. Uh, I had a great time with uh, Craig and Hillel and the others. And uh, you didn't tell me that you, you had dinner with Donato. Yeah. That he joined you. Yeah. I thought you uh, I thought you knew that. Okay. Yeah. No, I didn't. I knew that he flew you up to Pittsburgh. Yeah. Yeah. So I invited him to come over if he wanted to. He said, if you want to hang out with some aviation geeks, he looked at me with trepidation and I said, that's okay. <laughs> they don't bite. And uh, so it was a lot of fun. And uh, so Hillel, thanks for organizing that. And Craig, thank you for taking some of your precious time off uh, to uh, meet up with us. That was a lot of fun. Uh, coming up this Sunday is a big meetup here in Atlanta. Uh, we're going to go to a baseball game uh, organized by um, Mike Carroll's. And if you are interested in joining us, uh, contact him by sending him an email, contact at flyingandlife.com. And uh, originally, we we're going to uh, get some kind of a group rate, but we had to have like 20 people to do it. And uh, I think so far, about six of us are going to be going to the game, including a, a, a Kiwi, uh, from, obviously from New Zealand. Glenn Towler is going to be in Atlanta, and we're going to treat him to a game of baseball. And we're going to do that by uh, also starting a tailgate uh, party about 1030 and then we're going to walk over to the ticket booth or ticket counter and go ahead and you know buy some tickets and try to find a seat in that stadium and watch the baseball game so I'm looking forward to that and let's probably in the shade yeah it's we're gonna gonna, we're gonna make sure that we're in the shade for sure it's a 130 first pitch so it's gonna be uh, hot. Um, let's see. Also, uh, next week, I'm going to have a layover on Friday night in Columbus, Ohio, or I should say a mid, a, a medium sized Midwestern airport. And I'm hoping to meet up with, uh, at least two folks who are with us now in the chat room, uh, Jen and James. So look forward to that. We're going to be meeting over at, what is it called? The short pint or something like that. Maybe they can, uh, put that again in the chat room. I forgot exactly what the place is. And I think uh, Jen gets off work at around five o'clock. So it's an early morning for me. So let's say six o'clock. Let's uh, meet up at that place. And then uh, that'll be enough time to enjoy some adult beverages. And then I can get a good night's sleep before I have a very early sign in the next morning. Short uh, North Pint House. Thank you. Short North Pine House. Thank you, James. And I was going to say, uh, a, a, a bar called the Short Pint doesn't actually sound like it would attract many yeah, customers. That's true. <laughs> yeah, we'll reserve eight ounce pints. Well, yeah, at I, least, want, I want a full <laughs> pint. I don't want the short pint. I got at least two of the words right. I got short and pint. I just forgot the north part. Partial credit. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, let's see. And then, of course, Oshkosh. You know, Glenn's coming into Atlanta, and then he's going to head up to Wisconsin for the EAA Air Venture. And if you're interested in, if you're going and you want to meet up with fellow APG members, uh, there's a channel in Slack and it's uh, Oshkosh 2017. So uh, check that out. And if you want to learn how you can be part of our Slack community at the end of the show, listen for Hillel. I think he's standing by for that. So you'll have to wait probably about two and a half hours before you hear from him. All right. That is 
all I had on our, like, did you need any more, um, from meetups and stuff? Anything else we'd like to say before we do the coffee fund? Yeah, I'm on my second beer. Okay. That's uh, good. Hey, Fred, make sure that you uh, meter that intake. <laughs> Trust me, you'll be happy you did. I, I did a little experiment. This is an unfinished work, but um, I'm trying to figure out a way to uh, play the Java Jive without uh, breaking copyright. It'll never work. <laughs> so let's, let's just take a quick listen to this. I love coffee, I love tea, I love the Java Jive and it loves me, coffee and tea and the Java and me, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, oh yeah, I love Java sweet and hot, whoops Mr. Moto, I'm a coffee pot. Shoot me the pot and I'll pour me a shot. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. There we go. Uh, just a, it's a well, work in progress. A barbershop quartet. Jeff, <laughs> just I'm me. Very impressed. Yeah, I don't very know. Very nice. But I think we'll probably just stick with this instead. Nah, yours was much better. No, I like yours better. Coffee, I love tea. I love the Java Jive and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Okay, while they sing the Java Jive in the background, we're going to talk about the coffee fund, which is your way to support the show financially. And since last week... We have some, several of you, thank you, uh, use the Coffee Fund Classic Method. And they would be Jason Ott, Mervyn Broadway, Donald Maranto, Philip Martinsky, Cosley Joseph, thank you, Cosley, and Matt Cole. Oh, I need to tell you about Matt in a second. Remind me. Jeff, tell us about Matt Cole. Draw <laughs> Whoops. Dead air. That's never a good thing. Okay, and uh, another way you can uh, join the Coffee Fund cadre, uh, be a financial supporter via the Coffee Fund, is by joining us on Patreon.com. You, you can become a patron of the show, and since the last episode, we have a new patron, Chris Postel. He uh, has made a pledge, and thank you very much for that, Chris, uh, for joining the Coffee Fund cadre. And if you want to learn about how you can support us financially, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. Thank you. Okay. Let's go ahead and fade out this group of folks who are singing in the background. And thank you. We can move on to the Matt news. Cole. Matt Cole. Did Matt Cole. Oh, yeah. Let me talk about Matt Cole. So, um, was it Wednesday morning? I was, uh, yeah, because we had the meetup in Baltimore in, on Tuesday. I was walking to the gate um, Wednesday morning, and I noticed that there was this passenger walking in the other direction, and he was, like, staring as we were walking, you know, opposite directions, staring at my ID on my shirt. And I'm thinking, what is this guy doing? And then he just kind of walks by, and I'm thinking, I don't really recognize this guy. And then I got a, a tweet, or I saw a tweet from this guy named Matt Cole, and he says, um, 
made some kind of a comment like uh, by the time I realized that that was Captain Jeff, he was long gone going in the opposite direction. So we missed each other. Uh, Matt is uh, part of the APG community, and uh, he was one of our Coffee Fund contributors there. I mentioned him uh, just a few moments ago, and uh, I told him next time, make sure that you process this more quickly so you can say, hey, Jeff. So and we can like have a coffee together or whatever. But uh, so I'm sorry that uh, we didn't get a chance to talk, but uh, that was kind of cool. I I enjoyed seeing your tweet. All right. There we go. Anything else before we move on to the news? Mm, I just sent you a text, but. Oh, well, then let me look at your text. Look at it real quick. Decide if you want to mention it. Oh, yeah, we do need to do that. Thank you very much. Uh, HR. Yeah. Um, Where did I did I put that in the notes? No. Oh, I should have. I meant to. Yeah. Last week, uh, we talked about both in the news section and in the feedback section, um, a, a great website uh, entitled, um, let's see, Fear. I got to make sure I get this right. Fear of Landing. Uh, Sylvia Wrigley uh, has a wonderful website. What is that I'm hearing there? Is that like? Uh, sorry, uh, sirens sirens the we're background. on fire here. The fireman just called <laughs> okay. to put us down. I'll, I'll I'm, mute, mute the I'm a little concerned about you guys. <laughs> I thought I thought you were actually whistling or something, like uh, serenading <laughs> no, me to this. It's the street noise. Anyway, so Sylvia Wrigley, I, you know, I mentioned that I stumbled upon this site. Uh, Stephen Ivey had sent us some uh, feedback regarding that uh, incident, that idiot that flew the uh, twin and ended up killing himself and a couple other passengers. Um, Stephanie read from that last week and I we really didn't do a very good job of um, stating her website I think uh, I called it fear of flying it's not fear of flying uh, Steph I think I said fear of falling fear somehow of falling. I don't even know how I managed <laughs> to say that because I definitely looked at the what it was written that said fear of landing so I'm yeah just one of those things where I don't know, you know, I, yeah. I wasn't thinking about what I was saying either. Uh, obviously, I didn't mean to say fear of flying. Fear of landing is her website, fear of landing dot uh, com. And uh, so uh, just wanted to make sure everybody understands that that is the correct website URL. And as I said before in last week's show, I signed up for her email notifications. So anytime that she puts something new on her site, uh, it sends an email to me, and then I can go uh, read what she has to say about whatever she's writing about. And uh, I, you know, I've literally spent hours uh, on her site looking at various things. Very, very fascinating stuff. She's also an author, and she's uh, uh, has some books there that she's written, obviously. And uh, you can check those out. So again, Sylvia, sorry for screwing up the URL. It's Sylvia Wrigley's Fear of Landing website fearoflanding.com check it yep. out and, yep and just to be clear the feedback i read was directly from her blog so yes. want to make sure that's properly attributed to her right so. and you know what we're you know that that was good that um we we realized that and uh it's going we're going to be more careful about uh, you know attribution in the future all right absolutely there we go okay now i think would be a good time for us to move on to the news. We have a lot of it this week.
Okay, the first item is uh, kind of sad news uh, from CNN.com. 16 dead and Marine Corps plane crash. Let's see. I have some audio here. Let's uh, listen to Barbara Starr from CNN reporting. 16 souls lost on this Marine Corps KC-130 aircraft that crashed in Mississippi late yesterday. No details because nobody knows what happened to it. It's not even clear if the pilot was able to make a mayday call, give any signal that the plane was in distress. The video from the ground obviously showing the wreckage, the flames, uh, it crashing into some sort of field or apparent agricultural area. This plane is a real workhorse of the U.S. military. Military. Uh, this version, this Marine Corps airframe is used as a refueling aircraft sometimes, but also hauls cargo, hauls troops. Uh, it, it is just one of the decades old workhorses of the entire aviation fleet. The Marine Corps now investigating in several hours from now when they are able to contact all the family members, all the next of kin. Sometime after that, we will learn the names of those who perished. So, as I said, seven of the service members killed in the military transport plane uh, were from the elite Marine unit based at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. The other nine Marines killed were uh, from Orange County, New York, and the KC-130T aircraft was based in New York. I believe it was a, uh, I think it was a guard base at, um, what's the name of the base now? I can't uh, think of it offhand. Uh, Newburgh, uh, up in uh, New York. Uh, that's a, another name, but it's at Newburgh, uh, just up the Hudson River, uh, north of Manhattan. Uh, so they're not really sure exactly what happened, but uh, the latest news that I was able to read said that there were actually two debris fields uh, located. Uh, one story said about a mile apart. Another story said almost two miles apart. So it looks like it's pointing to a problem that they had uh, up at altitude. And uh, something happened and caused the, cra- the plane to come down. And uh, it's quite a tragedy. One of the uh, witnesses, eyewitnesses, said that the plane spiraled nose down to the ground. One of the engines appeared to be trailing white smoke. At first, it looked like an acrobatic plane, like a stump plane, blowing the smoke out the back, he said. Then all of a sudden, he realized that the smoke was coming off one of the sides of the wing. He called 911 after the crash, and he said he didn't see the impact because the trees blocked his view. So uh, there's uh, blocking access to the site uh, to perform the investigation and also to keep the public uh, safe because apparently there was some uh, some ammunition and some other stuff on that uh, could be dangerous. What do you all think about this? Well, I don't know, Jeff, but uh, I'd love to know what kind of uh, maneuvers they were carrying out uh, on that mission. Um Anywhere refueling is very safe uh, for the receiver normally, but we lost uh, a couple of air-to-air refuelers over the years because the receiver has, because, uh, you know, a fire, any aircraft maneuvering close to you, uh, it's a possibility that they might touch. And uh, we lost a, a victor tragically and killed everyone on board when uh, a buccaneer clipped his uh, tail as he was disengaging. And... Uh, uh, eventually, the tail, uh, uh, you know, only a few seconds later, departed uh, company with the aircraft, and the aircraft bunted to death, uh, killing everyone on board. Um, I, I don't know. What, I'm just trying to think 
what a, a one thirty might be doing. Uh, you know. I think th- in this case, it was just a, a regular transport flight uh, going from North Carolina to, I believe, somewhere out in uh, Southern California, and then eventually to uh, uh, Yuma, Arizona. And so it was just a regular, you know, flight transporting. Fred and I were saying crew. the uh, one thirty is such a wonderful workhorse. It's got such a fantastic and incredibly safe. Uh, record that uh, I would think it's unlikely that it just decided to give up in midair. Uh, right. It's got to be something more to it. Than that. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll find out more about this in the future. It may be one of those things that, especially with military accidents, uh, we're likely not to hear uh, anything about this for approximately a year. Uh, but uh, if we do hear about what the cause was, we'll certainly talk about it on the show. So our, uh, our prayers and thoughts to the family members for uh, those lost in this tragic crash. It just goes to show that the protecting freedom is not free. No, nope. I mean, any, any, anytime uh, something can happen like this and, you know, our men and women in uniform uh, certainly are always at risk, whether they're in an active war zone or just, you know, out practicing. So yeah. my, my heart goes out to the families, the, for those who have served and continue to serve our country. Yep. Thank you, Dan. Very well said. So is this pronounced Maho or Mayho? Ma- Maho. Mayho. Mayho. Mayho uh, Princess Juliana Airport in uh, St. Martin. Uh, a New Zealand tourist died on Wednesday afternoon, yesterday, after hitting her head on a concrete block behind the Princess Juliana International Airport SXM fence on the Mayho Beach side. Uh, the article continues, and this is from airlive.net. Tourists gather on a daily basis to experience jet blasts from aircraft taking off from the runway. There's no S at the end of aircraft. Reports suggest that the woman was holding onto the fence with a number of tourists when the strength of the jet blast blew her onto the street where she hit her head, knocking her out. And another story I was reading said that she actually died from cardiac arrest. So, uh, uh, I think that this is the first case. Uh, there have been several people who have been injured in the past uh, doing this stuff. James, you should know better. Um, but uh, apparently this is the first death reported from uh, doing this activity. Yeah, I was just there in uh, in May. It was such an awesome, awesome uh, place to be and, and experience for those who have never been there, um, certainly recommend going. I just hope that this isn't going to cause them to shut that whole area down. There there are huge warning signs everywhere, uh, not to hang on to the fence, not to be anywhere near the fence. Uh, you know, being, being on the other side, it, there's a, a fence, then there's a roadway, then there's the beach. Uh, if you're on the other side on the beach, if, if you get blown back, you get blown into the sand, um, in or into the water that, you know, the likelihood of you getting hurt is very, very slim, even if you get taken off your feet. But at that distance, you're, you're much further away from the jet blast. So uh, I, I don't think uh, I don't think somebody uh, that far back would necessarily get really seriously hurt. But she had to have been over on the other side of, the, you know, on the fence on the other side of the road. And that's the only reason why she would have, you know, fallen and hit her head. I've seen video uh, on YouTube of, you know, many videos on YouTube of people at uh, Mayho Beach doing this. But one showed, and this was several years ago, um, a female who was holding onto the fence and uh, somehow couldn't hang on and tumbled backwards. And she also hit her head on a 
on that uh, concrete. Yeah, because there's like wall. a little concrete ledge barrier wall. Yeah, you know, that separates the the road and the beach. So there. it's not the first time that something like this has happened, but I guess it's the first time that somebody's actually died. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I can't help but think I read the the headline of this, and most of the news articles I've seen about it says tourist dies from jet blast. Well, not exactly. Indirectly, um, I guess. Indirectly, that was it was more the the choices that were made that led to that point. I think. So, yeah. Quite honestly, on holiday, you could trip, fall over, have a few too many beers, tumble and hit your head almost anywhere. This is uh, a tragic accident. But, you know, just to to lay it in the sole uh, cause being the the jet blast. No, I I, I don't go with that. And uh, I I think it's it's a wonderful thing to have. I, I do sometimes wonder at some of the approaches the guys make. It just does look like they might possibly be exaggerating their angle uh, of, of uh, approach to the runway there to look impressive. Yeah, it looks like they might I would be. hate to think that, that was true. And that's one of the few things that worries me is that uh, uh, somebody might just accidentally one day drop their gear into the sand and that would not only uh, put into danger a lot of people but wreck someone's career. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's great, but uh, just keep it safe, guys. I think if you ever find me there, which I've not been, but I really, really would like to go sooner rather than later you'll find me over at the bar watching all yeah, of this well clear <laughs> of all they that. sell ipa at that bar i don't even care <laughs> as long as it's cold and whatever dana knows yeah i was gonna ask dana what he thought but he's just disappeared oh darn oh well he'll come back and tell us um well moving on uh we see that uh Captain Nick and Fred are in San Francisco. This story is from San Francisco. Uh, several of you sent in feedback regarding this. Mark, uh, let's see, Tim and Danish and Ruben, uh, which we'll talk about his feedback here uh, after we talk about this little news story. So let's see, how can we set this up? Let's play a little bit of um, audio, shall we? And uh, so I just want to confirm, uh, Canada 759, uh, we see some lights on the uh, runway there across the runway. Can you confirm a clear land? Okay, Canada 759 confirms clear to land, runway 2 right there is no one on 2 right side of you. Okay, yeah, Canada 759. Where's this guy going? He's on the taxiway. Air Canada, go around. In the go around, right, Canada 759. Canada 759, looks like we're lined up there. Uh, fly heading 280, climb in, 3000. Heading 
Ah, nice fun, Jeff. Perfect. He's going to be playing in the airplane when we fly tomorrow. Yeah, we are. <laughs> you can always go around by taking the recording of that. And uh, so, uh, an Air Canada plane narrowly averted disaster after it almost landed on a taxiway with four other planes on it uh, in San Francisco Friday night. Air Canada flight AC-759 from Toronto was cleared to land on runway 28 right just before midnight. However, the pilot inadvertently lined up on taxiway Charlie, which runs parallel to the runway. An air traffic controller sent the Air Canada jet around. And then we just played the audio from that. And uh, we'll have this link in the show notes so you can read along and you can look at the uh, diagram that they have put in here and the uh, intended runway of landing to eight right and the taxiway where there were four airplanes uh, taxiing out uh, for takeoff on that same runway. And so um, <laughs> this this article says, uh, again, this is from CBC News Canada, uh, San Francisco Airport requires precision flying. Well, Every airport requires precision flying, actually. <laughs> Not sloppy flying. Precision flying is something that uh, keeps everyone safe every no, single no, okay, day. Okay. Don't, don't take your East Coast game to California, guys. We require precision <laughs> flying. Okay. Games. I see. It's, it's somehow <laughs> different. There. This ain't no LaGuardia. Come on. <laughs> so... Uh, Ruben uh, says, uh, I'm sure your inbox inbox will be bulging on this one. (laughs) So rather than adding to the armchair commentary ahead of a formal investigation, I'm curious to know if it's common for commercial airliner traffic to fly VFR approaches in Europe into airports on a par with the likes of San Francisco, uh, for example, Heathrow or Gatwick in the UK. I'm a private pilot based out of Biggin Hill, which is the executive aviation airport for London. And even there, the vast majority of business jets arrive IFR, being vectored onto the ILS, with light aviation making up the bulk of the VFR traffic. I spent a good amount of time listening to ATC in and around London, uh, and I can't recall hearing airliners being cleared for visual approaches. I'm curious as to whether there are differences between the U.S. and Europe with regard to VFR arrivals and departures, or if it's just the structure of the airspace in the southeast of England that precludes VFR operations. And he says, we are covered in a blanket of Class A down to 2,500 feet. So I thought that was something that we might want to talk about, but I guess first we should talk about this incident itself. Uh, the airplane coming in on the quiet bridge approach, I believe he said as he checked in, and looking at the runway, or they thought that they were looking at the runway, they see lights on the runway, concerned, as they should be, and Tower said, no, nope, nobody's on the runway. That should have been a clue. Uh, but uh, they continue their approach to the taxiway instead, and uh, the uh, astute uh, United pilot said, uh, tower looks like they're not lined up on the runway. They're lined up on the taxiway. Uh, one report I saw said that they were, they went as low as 175 feet above the airplanes on taxiway, Charlie. That's pretty low, but I'm curious to hear Nick's take on this thing is how he just, just now flew into San Francisco and landed on two, eight, right? So, yeah, I, well, if it hadn't been for Fred's, uh, tweet, uh, showing me a picture of the runways and reminding me what they look like. <laughs> land uh, here. I think I might well <laughs> have there. been in 
in the same situation. So thank you very much, Fred. I was much appreciated. Um, Another sorry. tragedy averted. Thank you, Fred. Absolutely. <laughs> it requires a lot of local knowledge. It does. Uh, yeah, you, yeah. And precision, precision flying. Yeah, precision flying. He set me right. So uh, <laughs> I wasn't going to fall for the same trap. Um, to, to be fair, from uh, in a day uh, light uh, approach uh the runways are big fat black things uh and uh they they look like runways and it'd be hard to uh mistake it particularly since there was a 747 pointing at me on the taxiway i don't think i'd have landed nose to nose with him that wouldn't have been a good day um but this guy landed at midnight so uh, i'm guessing he's probably pretty tired he might be at a uh, circadian low he uh is relying on the lighting and i did notice in uh, the no terms that there was a consider- considerable level of lighting that was inoperative uh, in bits and pieces today so i don't know what lighting might have been out on uh, the night he made the approach uh it might have been that uh that taxiway looked more like the runway than uh, it would do in a simple diagram or uh, whatever way to using it. What we do, we haven't seen it through his eyes. Fred made a very good point uh, just a little while ago when we were talking about this. He was saying it's okay for one of you to become um, spatially disorientated in, in that you have lost a little track of what's exactly reality and you're making a mistake. But the pilot monitoring is the guy that isn't influenced and should be the guy that's keeping an eye on that. Uh, Perhaps you could make that point again, Fred. Yeah, I I think it's okay for, it it sounds like the the guy that was, that was speaking was trying to match what he, where he was thinking he was with what his eyes were telling him. You know, he's, I, I think I'm lined up, but what I'm seeing isn't right as opposed to say, maybe I'm not lined up correctly. And you could tell that, pro- I mean, it's happened to me before. I mean, not landing on a taxiway a la Harrison Ford, but it's, you know, it's happened to me sometimes when you try to resolve the picture in front of you, and you say like, that's what I should be seeing and you try to make it work. But I can't imagine that the person sitting next to him was having the same issue at the same time. So it'd be interesting to see what the dynamics in the yeah. cockpit were at that yeah. time and why and they didn't know that. You bring up a lot of good points about, you know, this happened late at night, circadian rhythm, being fatigued. And that's when that becomes a whole lot more difficult to resolve those problems. Um, You know, I'm just thinking about the one and only time I ever accepted a visual approach. Um, uh, I think it was into Raleigh at night. Um, I was familiar with the airport to begin with. So I knew where we were going, which runway it was, what the layout was, where we were coming from. But we still also backed it up with the ILS. So we had more situational awareness there because, again, it's night. You know, your your visual references are different at night. You're potentially more tired. Um, and the more tools that you have at your disposal to make sure that you're going where you're supposed to be going, when you're supposed to be going there, um, the better off you are. So, Well, yeah. you know, go ahead, Dan. We are, all can be can be Monday morning quarterbacks. Sure. However, bottom line is there's a big difference between blue and white. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, white is you know runway lights and green terminating bars. At the, you know, beginning of the runway versus blue lights with taxi aircraft taxiing on in between the blue lights. So, you know, there are the the external factors. You know, fatigue. Um, it was. I'm guessing if it's an Airbus, uh, probably an Airbus in Air Canada. So who knows what they're backing up? I'm, I'm, I'm only joking, but yeah, they should have been backing the uh, the approach up with with the um, the ILS uh, frequency and certainly monitoring that. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see if fatigue plays into this one. 
but there's definitely a difference between blue lights and white lights. And, and that's not, it, it, at, you know, when you're approaching at night, blue lights are nowhere near as prominent as the white lights. Yeah, so. and I must admit, from, from my point of view, uh, uh, seeing the green uh, threshold lights, you only get those very late. Um, and you're quite right, sometimes white and blue, uh, if they turn up bright, uh, aren't as clear to distinguish as you like to think. Uh, and uh, if the approach lights were out, uh, I mean, how you could ma make a mistake if you've got a full set of approach lights leading to the runway, well, that's impossible. So I'm guessing the uh, the approach lights might have been out. Uh, so, I, I mean, I can't think of any other yeah, reason. That, that's a good point. Yeah, I didn't uh, check the notums to see if and perhaps the uh, approach lighting system, part of it or all of it, may have been not operable. Uh, and same thing with the pappies. Uh, both 28 left and 28 right have uh, pappies on the left side of each of those runways. Uh, maybe they weren't working either. I don't know. Yeah, but sometimes it takes a, a good conscientious briefing to mention that the pappies are on the left. And when they pitch up on the right, or the other way around, actually, it would have been it, wouldn't it? Um, then you go, hang on a minute, the pappies are or like the way over the left. on the wrong side of the <laughs> runway. But yeah. you've got to brief that, and you've got to have it in your head that I'm expecting this picture. And if it doesn't pitch up right, then you start questioning uh, what you're doing. But at least they, yeah, they had well, a sense that something was <laughs> not right, and uh, and they said the, it. And they said so. And then also, uh, you know, kudos to the airplanes paying attention when they were taxing out uh, as to what was, you know, the approach coming in. And uh, they were they were cognizant of the fact that, hey, I don't think this is guy. This guy is lined up on the runway. It looks like he's landing or trying to land on top of us. Um, so. And to be and, clear, and, too, that distance is very small. I mean, I've landed on two eight right at San Francisco. The, very tight. The, the um the, the distance between the taxiway and the runway is probably 70 feet or 50 feet i mean it's one airplane width mm -hmm. and so so you know if the um if the approach lights or the strobes are a little too high and you know you're, you're you're still it still looks like you're going into those strobes uh you're just seeing you know lights beyond that probably the taxi lights of the airplanes that were lined up to wait so it's a uh, yeah it's tricky. Well, you know, and, 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 and something that, you know, we kind of touched upon a little bit is, is, is fatigue. Uh, you know, if this is a Toronto-based crew, they're coming in from Toronto and they're on East Coast time. Midnight San Francisco time is 3 o'clock in the morning, their body clock time. So, you know, I, yeah. I think that that's going to be a huge factor. I mean, as Captain, Captain Nick's sitting there and your body clock time right now is uh, – no, oh, nearly two o'clock in the morning. Whereas uh, it was nine, ten. So it's uh, uh, just uh, almost nine o'clock there. So your 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 body clock is completely off whack. So you know, I'm not making excuses, but I wouldn't be surprised if that plays into this. Yeah, all, all these elements can add together. And uh, as we said many times, when you line those holes in the Swiss cheese up, it's uh, kind of not your day. Yeah. So. For those who aren't familiar uh, with flying into San Francisco International, the parallel runways, uh, the 28s and the, uh, let's see, what's the other set of runways? Zero ones. Yeah, zero ones. Um, they are very closely spaced. And in fact, so much so that they can't legally run two uh, simultaneous instrument approach procedures. Well, 
not straight in approaches. Uh, when they when the weather gets down to a certain level, they can use these uh, modified procedures. weird approaches. Pardon me. Weird approaches. Yeah, they're, they're um, weird. They're one off. They're kind of strange. <laughs> so so what they've done is uh, when the when the conditions are visual. Uh, you can come in and uh, one uh, approach of the left is pretty much a straight in approach. The one coming in from the right on the right side is kind of coming in at an angle. So, you know, way far out, the space in between airplanes is, is, is good. You get closer and closer to the runway because the one on the right is angling in. Uh, it, you get closer and closer to the traffic on the other runway and they allow for that offset to uh, take place and then closer in, they basically line up with the runway. And uh, if uh, they're, and they have to have visual contact with the other runway, I mean, the other airplane approaching the other runway. But uh, when the weather gets a little bit lower, they can actually run instrument approach procedures, uh, an offset uh, on the 28 right. And again, uh, when they get to a certain point, they have to have visual contact with uh, the other traffic and the um, the runway itself, so that they. I can, think that's about eleven hundred feet. Uh, having yeah. done read it today, I think you can come on the left runway down to two hundred feet. On the right runway, you have to. Uh, it's about eleven hundred feet, I think. Jeff. I put a I'm bunch not- of these uh, in the um, in that piece of feedback in the news folder. I have several um, PDFs of the the approaches. Uh, they have several um, visual approach procedures: the uh, the tiptoe visual, the quiet bridge visual, and they also has have a uh, FMS bridge visual approach. And uh, there's a little fact sheet talking about uh, PRM. They actually have prison pr- uh, <laughs> precision uh, runway monitor approaches, PRM approaches, and uh, sing- simultaneous offset offset instrument approach procedures. So uh, a little bit of information there. I'll include that in the show notes as well. So you can read up about that. But um, anywho. It's not the easiest of airports in bad no. conditions. And a, a good day when you've got the ILS up, it's really, it's doddle. Yep. Unless you're Asiana and you're messing about with the autothrust. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, if the conditions are poor, I can imagine this would be a very testing airport. But, and then you've just got to consider the terrain around it on top of everything else. Yeah. You've got a lot going on in your head. So uh, to address Ruben's question about the uh, the differences between visual approaches here in our country and in the, the UK, um, and what, what would you say about that? Well, uh, no, you correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I think you can close aircraft up in the States uh, tighter if you're on a visual approach because it's down to the pilots to judge their own separation. Yes. And the controller is no longer uh, taking responsibility for that. Um, Whereas in the UK, uh, we tend to do purely instrument approaches and the controller is always responsible. But we know that they can get them pretty uh, tight and get a good traffic flow um, because of what Adam Spinks told us about the the uh, new technology in the Heathrow that allows them to close aircraft up with different weight vortex, um, uh, of different weight uh, separations because of their vortex. Um, so in the UK, it's much more common just to do pure instrument approaches. You will never get a visual approach in between all those instrument approaches. Everybody does straightforward INS to land. The controllers are hugely practiced at it, and they can get a great uh, flow in. In the States, things have grown up differently. 
uh, and uh, it's accepted that uh, if you're an instant approach, you're going to have to wait your turn, you're going to have to be fed in, you're going to need more separation, and it's a little bit of an inconvenience. Um, and I, I just think it's the way the two countries have developed. Uh, I don't think one is necessarily better than the other. Uh, I've, I've got a bias because I know what's familiar and I know what I'm more comfortable with. Right. And I prefer more than one person taking responsibility for separation. I prefer both me and the controller to have that um, responsibility to make sure that it's not on just on one person's shoulders. But uh, I, I don't know if the states will ever move over to uh, a more European style of doing things. But certainly uh, in the Europe and the UK, if you go to a big an air- airport, you're going to be expected to do an instrument approach. Now, I think that it's very important to uh, state here because we, we've talked about visual approaches in the past. And I think that sometimes we use this uh, terminology without really going into detail about what exactly we mean when we say visual approaches. Uh, so the the big airports like Atlanta and, and uh, Chicago and JFK, if we're on a visual approach, these are a straight in approach. And basically they're mirroring what you would be doing if you were flying an ILS approach or a, an RNAV straight in approach to a runway. It's not like you know, you're going to enter a downwind entry and then a base and a dog leg and that kind of thing. Although we do do that type of thing on uh, at some smaller airports um, that aren't like Atlanta and Chicago O'Hare and uh, all those. But uh, so the the basic reason why we do that, as Captain Nick just mentioned, is that the the difference between an, an IFR approach or a, an instrument approach procedure and a visual approach clearance is that the pilot is given the responsibility to maintain visual separation and wake turbulence avoidance with the preceding aircraft. And there, there are also some exceptions to this rule of thumb, and we've talked about these kind of approaches several times on the show, uh, where we have a charted visual approach, like the River Visual Runway 19 at DCA, the Expressway Visual Approach at LaGuardia, uh, to three one, where they require you to fly a specific ground track, and so those have to be basically have to be visual approaches. Uh, so also uh, airports like San Francisco, where the parallel runway spacing is less than required for simultaneous IFR operations. So that's so when usually when I'm saying a visual approach, that's what I'm talking about. Although there are times, you know, not that common anymore where we'll fly into an airport like Bradley or uh, uh, Flint or something like that. It's a beautiful day. And we'll actually fly, you know, we'll get vectored to a downwind and we'll let them know that we see the airport and they'll let us go. They'll let us determine when it's time to descend and when it's time to turn a base leg, et cetera. And uh, that's kind of fun, actually. It's a lot of fun to do that kind of approach. As long as you can see the airport and or the traffic preceding you. Yep. And keep them in sight at all times. And keep clear of clouds. Yes. But it's still an instrument procedure, though. It's, it's still not, an instrument. Exactly. It's not like you're going VFR or anything. You're still yep. under instrument flight rules at that point. You're just flying a visual procedure. Yeah. It's kind of confusing, isn't it? <laughs> it's a, it's, you're still on an uh, yeah, instrument approach clearance, but uh, you're using visual cues to uh, fly it. And SFO is really tricky. So it's two to one, right? If they have to go with the ILS, it's they lose half the capacity of the airport. And so they try to not do that. And you hear it on frequency. You, is there's, remember, Jeff, when we were flying, there's all these little layers everywhere. And so guys may be visual for most of the approach, except for that one little bit. And the control says, do you have the field? And it, you, there's a bit of a delay or one to two seconds. And so, yeah, we have it when they clear the layer. So there's, I have a field. 
that feeling. It's not the field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. cows in. <laughs> Lots of fields. Can you be more place. specific about which field you are referring yeah. to? Uh, actually, stand by. Fred was, Fred was just telling me he uh, has actually flown his light aircraft into yeah. uh, into San Fran on 28 right, and uh, he was just telling me about how he decides where to land it so he doesn't block the runway for too long. Go ahead, Fred. So we, we, we're we coming in about 100 knots, 110 knots, so we can't land on the numbers because then we have three miles to taxi to where we're going and we jam the airport. So the control will tell us, hey, land at Delta or land at Echo. And so we're, we're, we've got one guy with the taxi. We're flying at 100 knots, 100 feet over the runway with the taxi diagram out looking for the taxiway signs. And when we see the one that we want, we pull the power back, we land, and we come off. I mean, it's uh, it's literally like landing in a parking lot. He's <laughs> so yeah. cool. There's a great video of it, though. It's hilarious. Yeah. And he's got a great picture on his wall of his uh, aircraft sitting there at San Francisco Airport. That's the way we do it in the Mad Dog as well. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. So uh, we'll we'll put those links in the show notes. You can uh, have a look at uh, this incident and perhaps some of those approach plates and stuff and check it out. See what a complicated uh, approach environment it is. Uh, but I, I hope it's on some way to explaining perhaps how this guy might have made that mistake. It's it's, it's not a straightforward. This bloke's an idiot. No, maybe no, no, not fans. at all. Yeah, absolutely. But that to is- me, it's all the, it's about the human factor. So when you start asking yourself these questions, when you're saying stuff out loud and you clearly your brain doesn't agree what your eyes are seeing, it's interesting to watch the process of people still trying to resolve that and not saying, wait a minute, something's wrong. You're yeah. still trying to look for a solution that makes what you think is right, correct. And that's that's just the way our brains work. And it's it's, it's a great example of that. You, you can hear, hear it, it in that, his voice that you know, yeah. he's just not really convinced that what they're doing is the right thing. So, it just took that little nudge, you know, to uh, to get them to uh, perform that uh, procedure we'd like to call. You can always go around. Go around. I'm taking a copy of that, Tom, from <laughs> You know what? I can't tell you how many times I'm flying around and I hear somebody talking about going around. And I'm to, mm-hmm, go around. <laughs> it's, a, it's a sickness. <laughs> All right. And finally, the last uh, piece of news in the folder um, from the Aviation Herald, um, a an Airbus A320 Delta Airlines near Daytona Beach on July 10th, just a couple of days ago. Uh, they were flying from Atlanta to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, with 132 people on board. They had just reached cruise level 320, uh, 32,000 feet, about 80 nautical miles north of Daytona Beach. And they were deviating around a frontal system with embedded storm cells when the aircraft flew through hail, prompting the crew to, di- to divert to Daytona Beach, reporting a cracked windshield at the first officer's side as a result of the hail strike. The aircraft landed safely at Daytona Beach about 25 minutes later. And uh, there's a picture here of the uh, uh, the first officer's side windshield cracked and the radome looks like it took a little bit of paint damage, at least. Uh, they also include, Simon includes a, a picture of the um, infrared satellite at the time and uh, where they were approximately when they uh, were in the hail. And uh, it's, uh, it's a very red looking area. There's also a little bit more detailed 
graphic. This may not be exactly where all the cells were because this is from FlightAware and they, uh, some of that information is delayed, uh, but they do their best to match it up with the actual flight path at the time. And you can see them um, in southern Georgia going you know, around cells and that kind of thing. But it looks like, according to this graphic anyway, they flew right through or very close to a, a very, very red cell. And uh, they uh, basically, from that point, turned 90 degrees to the left, headed out toward the Atlantic Ocean and, uh, you know, decided, oh, we're going to have to land at Daytona Beach, I guess. So uh, not the first time we've heard of a, a Airbus 320 uh, by this company <laughs> uh, experiencing hail. Uh, this one was daytime. The other one was a nighttime one when they were heading into Denver. And they decided to split the difference between some pretty severe cells, and uh, that was not a good idea. They had both windscreens taken out on that um, in that incident, I believe. Anyway, uh, that just goes to show you, um, you know, don't push your luck. If if you need to go uh, out, way out of your way to avoid this kind of convective activity, uh, it's probably a good idea to do so. I'm looking at this graphic, uh, Dana. I'm thinking, I think I would have headed out, you know, of course, as you mentioned, you know, we're Monday morning quarterbacking, uh, second guessing what they did. But uh, looks like if you'd headed out more easterly to uh, the coast, maybe around Charleston area between Charleston and Savannah, and then headed down the coastline, you might have avoided all that really nasty looking weather. But well, Jeff, you you, you know how difficult the air traffic be to deal with. Yeah. Um, you know, they don't let you deviate. They'll, they'll let you deviate, but not, not to the extent that you like to deviate a lot of times. Yeah. Uh, not only that, but you know, I don't, I've heard and maybe Captain Nick, you've been on the airplane a long time and I don't know, but I've heard that the Airbus radar is not the greatest radar. Um, it's, it's, I think from what I understand as our radar is actually better on our airplane. Hmm. Um, and you know, the other thing is people always get it wrong. 80 miles north of Daytona Beach, which means they're south of Jacksonville, Florida, and they just reached cruise altitude out of Atlanta? I don't think so. Yeah. Um, just, to, just to correct you there, Dana, the, the radar is a choice of uh, the airline. They, they fit what radar they want. They can pick the manufacturer. They can pick the model. They can pick okay. the price they pay. So it depends entirely uh, on uh, what you want to have your Airbus fitted out with. Uh, for example, our 340s, when we first got the old uh, 340-300s, they had a pretty basic set. I compare that with the uh, 330-300s we have now, which is uh, just uh, an unbelievably uh, capable radar, which uh, will automatically scan depending on uh, a worldwide database of terrain, and it knows exactly where the airport is. It, it moves itself around. It picks stuff out. It's got. It, it's all singing and dancing. So you can go from the fantastic to the extremely basic, and it just depends what you're willing to pay for. It could be. Yeah, and and where I've heard that from is my buddy uh, that flies the Spirit. And, uh, you know, the 320s and 319s at, at Acme uh, are former North aircraft, which I know the North aircraft, uh, North mentality was always by the, the least expensive and the cheapest. So that would make sense that uh, that's why I've heard of the 320 and 319 at Acme probably don't have as good a radar because it's probably the cheapest thing that they could find. 
Yeah, it's like a lot of the kit in the airplane. You can get a really swept yeah, up that makes um, sense. Um, transponder. You can get all sorts of cl- clever gear if you if you want to pay to have it fitted into your aircraft. But if your spec is uh, to keep it cheap and cheerful, then that's what you get. Okay, be careful out there, boys and girls. It's uh, some nasty weather this time of year. All right, time for the best part of the show. All right, let's start off with uh, this from Zachary. Hey, Captain Jeff, I'm a big fan of the show, as well as a private pilot working on my instrument rating, working my way up to the airlines. My question is, what is the scariest experience you've had in the air? As always, uh, tailwinds and blue skies. Zachary Smith. So, who, uh, who would like to talk about that? Scariest experience you've had in the air well i think um because uh, fred's gonna fly me tomorrow i just like to get him to tell me now what it's like to be why don't we answer that question on the next show <laughs> yeah stay tuned like, on the next show nick is going to have an update for his scariest no i'm just kidding <laughs> i would imagine nick you know especially your um your your air force uh, military career you probably had some scares that's probably the best one to tackle because it won't influence uh, and affect my company and I won't get any, <laughs> any knockbacks. Um, let me think. Uh, yeah, I do remember. And I, I, I told it. It's a story I, I told um, and is in a book uh, because uh, someone who was writing a book about the Phantom asked me to uh, come up with a, a, a little um, ditty. So uh, we were having our main runway ripped out at uh, my main base, uh, RAF Lucas. And as a consequence, we deployed all our aircraft up to a base in way northern Scotland called Kinloss. And uh, it was normally populated by Nimrod, anti-submarine uh, warfare aircraft. Uh, so uh, we were there, and we were considerable distance from the coast where we used to, uh, the east coast, we used to go out and do our... Um, most of our training. So there was a nice uh, overland uh, transit we had to do before we would pull up and get into Buckens airspace and start doing whatever exercise we were that day. Uh, and it involved, uh, we could, uh, the boss said we could do it low flying over the uh, beautiful Scottish uh, countryside. Um, uh, so long as we didn't waste too much gas doing it because obviously it consumed a bit more petrol being down there at low level than it would have done doing a medium-level transit, but it was a lot more fun. So uh, this day I had a three-bagger. So I had the maximum amount of external fuel tanks, uh, two on the wings and one on the center line. So that gives me, uh, you know, about another 10,000, 15,000 pounds of uh, fuel. Uh, and um, we were told we had to keep the fuel consumption down, so I was only transiting at about 360 knots. So I'm quite a heavy bird and uh, going relatively slowly. I mean, safe enough, you're just flying straight level, but we're doing low flying, so I'm just sitting there in a valley, um, gently weaving my way uh, through this beautiful countryside. And uh, Budgie, my uh, backseat, is in the, uh, sitting there with his head in the tube, so he's not looking out, he's, he's gazing at the green soup that uh, used to pitch up on his uh, radar screen. And uh, the, the valley I was in was uh, started off nice and broad and began to tighten up just as, uh, you know, it does in uh, a natural uh, feature. 
and uh, the corners became a bit tighter and I uh, saw my speed was starting to drop. So I eased the throttles up to uh, max military um, and uh, started winding the airplane into corners. And I'm you know, taking the racing line like you do, t- sitting out wide, looking around the corner to make sure there's nobody coming the other way, then pulling the aircraft firmly into the apex of the corner to brush the canopy against the rocks uh, so, so you don't pull too much chi and then whoosh you out into the next valley and then doing the same the other way. Um, but uh, I'm, and I'm looking out the window a lot. Uh, and I'm definitely not using reheat because that would really have defeated the object of trying to keep the fuel down. Anyway, uh, I came round a final corner and uh, I had no idea until it was a bit too late that I'd let the speed drop way back to about 300 knots. And uh, this valley ended with a sort of, uh, as it often does with one of these glacial valleys, with a, a, a nearly vertical uh, wall. Um, and that's what I was looking at when I came around the final corner, this, this kind of wall of granite. So I, I obviously hoofed back on the stick to, uh, you know, launch the airplane over this wall. But of course, I'm sitting so slow now that all the airplane really did was the angle of attack build up and very sluggishly the airplane started to climb. Uh, and I thought for a minute about popping the reheats in then, cause I thought, well, this is getting a bit desperate, but thing about the phantom reheats is the first thing they do when you engage them uh, is they actually open to full wide, um, which you think about it on a, on a jet engine, you have a, a narrow jet pipe. If it opens full wide to allow the leak reheats to light, you're actually going to lose thrust for a few seconds. And the reheats took a, a good five to 10 seconds to light the phantom. So uh, I thought, well, I can't do that. I'll just lose thrust. So I just kept pulling back and uh, the pedal shaker was going as we were uh, at a maximum angle of attack. And there was luckily a gap between the pine trees at the top of this granite ridge. Uh, And uh, we went through that gap. Um, And uh, about that time, I thought, well, we're clear of the ground. We didn't hit. I thought I was going to hit the backside of the airplane on the rock, to be absolutely fair. Um, and uh, at that point, I popped the burners in, and we zoomed up to 10,000 feet, and Budgie, who was sitting in the back seat, hadn't a clue what had just happened because he was looking at the the scope, and uh, he said, what's going on? And I, I didn't actually reply because <laughs> I was kind of a bit maxed out, and uh, we, we got up and got to a decent airspeed and a decent height, and I was in a bit of a cold sweat, and... Uh, um, you know, it's one point in my career where I really thought about just turning around, going back, thinking, you know, I just nearly wiped us both out on a cliff face. Uh, and that was kind of stupid. And uh, I wondered if I was, uh, you know, in the right job. Uh, but as, you know, uh, the confidence of youth, I was a very young man at the time, very quickly took over. And uh, I said, oh, don't worry, Budgie. I'm, I, just, uh, I just screwed up there for a bit. We're good now. Uh, almost carried on. Did the exactly? No, no big day. No big day. No, no big thing. You're okay now, right? In All right, fact, good. I don't good. think I ever told him about it. So if he is listening, Budgie, I'm <laughs> very sorry, mate. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, Steph, anything scary in the air? Uh, fortunately, not anything too significant. Not anything where I was, you know, thought I was insignificant danger or distress or trouble or losing the aircraft or myself or anything like that. Um, but Zachary mentions he's working on his instrument rating. And I think one of the scariest things for me was the first time I went out with my instructor in actual instrument conditions. Um, 
because it was not really a very nice day. Um, it wasn't horrible, but it was it was windy and the ceilings were relatively high, but we kept getting back up into the clouds to actually go in the instrument conditions and flying approaches and whatnot. And um, we left uh, the airport where we were based and flew about 30 miles to the south to shoot some approaches at another small airport there. And the first one we did as we came down, um, the winds had shifted and I can't remember if we actually had a little bit of wind shear or if the winds just weren't favorable anymore, but we we decided to go around there and fly the missed approach, which is all fine and good for practice for instrument flying. And as we went back out, we ended up back in a uh, area of stronger precipitation and stronger weather, um, you know, probably bordering on that green to yellow stuff on, on the radar. And in a single engine airplane, that's kind of challenging to deal with in, in the winds and uh, rain and being as my first time out flying in it, I was, you know, I had the instructor with me and, and everything was perfectly fine, but it was, it was very challenging and it was definitely making me very nervous about what I was doing and making sure that I was still climbing when I was supposed to be climbing and leveling off and avoiding the obstacles that I knew were out there. So, um, you know, that was, that was kind of scary. So not nearly as scary as Nick's story, but, um, since you're working on your instrument stuff, that's stuff to be thinking about and cognizant of. So yeah, out there with sounds one engine and me, yeah, it does still sound scary to me. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have radar either, did you? No, we did not, which is how we ended up in that, <clears throat> that nonsense. So. Yikes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So, you have any stories, Dana? Yes, I do actually. Um, flying across the country, uh, my buddy had been a part of a uh, um, a aero club out in Salt Lake City back when I get on with the airlines. Um, we would fly uh, various aircraft across the country, and we were flying a uh, single engine Comanche, which has bladder tanks. Uh, fuel tank, bladder fuel tank. So we're flying across country. It has a good range. So flew nonstop out of um, um, RYY, which is Cobb County Airport. Uh, and we were pulling into Enid, Oklahoma. And twin com- the single engine Comanche is, uh, you know, it's got those long range tip tanks. Uh, and it, it uh, we're on approach into Enid. And as we're coming down uh, on the on the glide slope, uh, you know, always back everything up, even back then, because we were trained to, to uh, you know, become airline pilots. The uh, next thing you know, the single engine decided to quit. Ooh. And so between us and the airport, and we, you know, had CRM going on, yeah, my buddy is troubleshooting the issue, and, and I was flying, there was my leg, I was flying the airplane. So we were, we were you know, <laughs> attention power lines. And there's laps and landing gear were already down, and uh, there was no way we were going to make it over the top of those power lines. So I pushed the nose of the aircraft over to get underneath the power lines and hopefully, you know, get below them and land the aircraft in, you know, in the field out there. And the next thing you know, the engine comes roaring back to life. And as it's roaring back to life, I'm looking at the power lines, which are just off my nose, uh, and now I'm below them, and had to make a very quick decision being fully configured flaps uh, all the way down landing gear i had to pull the uh, aircraft up over the power lines hoping that the engine would stay operating and then we're able to successfully barely clear the power lines and land the airplane uh, both uh, my buddy and i had to check our uh, our pants for 
yellow and brown stains because it was uh, quite a scary scenario because you know the next last thing you can see is on the news airplane gets hung up in power lines as the, air, the engine has uh, has uh, quit and we knew we had plenty and the whole reason uh, you know I was pointing out that we had long range tanks we knew how much fuel we still had on the aircraft and it was quite a bit uh, we still had I think had 22 or 24 gallons left uh, which in a single engine aircraft is you know another another two two and a half hours worth of flying. Uh, so we uh, <clears throat> got out. We had the aircraft uh, gone over, and as it turns out, the bladder tank we had to leave the aircraft there. The bladder tank was actually coming apart. The fragments of the rubber was were, were in the fuel line, and and had blocked the fuel. So in switching tanks, fortunately, the fuel had been restored, and that's how we regained. We gained our engine, but that was really close. We're talking, you know, I was 20, 30 feet off the ground in that that close to putting the aircraft into a field. That was uh, quite an eye-opening experience. Wow, that is scary. <laughs> that is terrifying. Not just, not just eye-opening by the sounds of it, Dana, but well done, mate. Yeah. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. A lot of quick decisions had to happen there, but, you know, fortunately, he and I both were instructors at at. Acme at that point, and we—he was ironically a CRM instructor, and I was a ground school instructor. So, you know, it was a quick action. I really think on both of our parts, knowing exactly who's going to do what. You know, pilot flying, pilot monitoring, pilots—you know—troubleshooting the issue. It, there was no question there. It wasn't fumbling around trying to go through checklists. It wasn't who's going to do what. It was immediate action, and that's what saved our butt that day. And we both recognize that even to this day. Wow. Yeah. Experience um, really does come into play here, and uh, I was just reading something I think today um, that somebody had linked to in, on Twitter that uh, Sully Sullenberger was uh, being interviewed by I don't remember who or what um, media outlet, but they were asking him about you know experience fifteen hundred hour rule that kind of thing, and and he said that the uh, the guy that he was with uh, Jeff. Um, Sykes, I think. Skiles. Uh, Skiles. That's it. Jeff Skiles. Uh, his first officer, um, the uh, miracle on the Hudson, had pretty much the same amount of experience that uh, Sully had. In fact, that uh, Jeff had been a captain, and then because of uh, you know the cutbacks in the airline and everything else, he had to uh, go back to be a first officer. And but he had about the same number of hours, nearly twenty thousand hours, as uh, Sully Sullenberger had. And the fact that uh, the two of them had so much experience, and I guess they had flown together quite a bit, there was a lot of coordination and working together without really saying anything. And he said that that was probably the difference between, you know, a successful outcome and a, a, a huge tragedy. So, uh, like in your case, Dana, you know, the two of you kind of just did things uh, in, in sync and uh, not a lot of time for discussion. Yeah, and, and that's, I mean, that's the primary focus of, of most, I think most of my airlines training nowadays is, is not, you know, it, it's not the captain flying and the pilot, you know, I mean, not the captain and first officer, it's the pilot flying and pilot not flying. So, and, and it, you know, that really builds a, a lot of uh, um, consistency in the way, you know, when you fly with different pilots and how you handle each situation. Uh, you know, obviously, different pilots have different skill sets to do things better than others. 
but certainly we're trained to the level level that we can even at at the professional level uh, still react the same way my buddy and I reacted because that's you know that's how we and what we did train so um well not in my darn cockpit I'm the king oh, I know. and whatever yeah, I right. say goes and don't you even dare think about correcting me yeah. <laughs> I can't, I can't agree, Jeff. Yeah. You know, so well, here, Dana, we'll check back in with you next year once you're captain yeah. again and let us know if you agree with that sentiment. No. 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 Agree with Jeff, agree with myself. Uh, yes. I was going to say, well, Fred does a, a lot of uh, interesting flying, and I uh, was saving him for last. What do you What do you have to say, Fred? I think my scariest one was was about a month ago with Captain Jeff, and we we're coming back to, to Palo Alto. <laughs> he kept saying, "Let go of the controls! Let go of the controls! We're going to crash." There's a there's a Captain Jeff's like, "Hey, isn't that fence a little bit close?" And in my defense, that fence was not there last time I flew. Um, it came so, out of nowhere. No, it really did. But so so I went back and I looked into this. Um, <laughs> Had to put a fence around the airport for TSA requirements has to be a certain height, but they can't put the fence on final because we couldn't make the runway. And so there's actually a cutout in the fence where we land. But if you look out the side of the window, it's actually really scary because you see the fence, (laughs) which is not there underneath the airplane. Oh, sure, Fred. He's just telling you this to make you feel better. I was lifting my legs up. I had, I had one tailwheel landing, a crosswind landing, where we had all of it in. We had all the rudder, all the aileron in that we could without putting the, the wingtip down. And we were still tracking across the runway. Yeah. And we, you know, you, we had no choice. We had no, you know, we were, we had to land and it was getting dark and we were getting low on fuel. And, and, you know, we waited as long as we could. But, you know, we were just like with all of it in. And the plane was just, just going to make, that's what's going to, and I just remember thinking, going, that's what going off the runway is going to feel like. I'm going to be able to tell people about it. But no, I think the scariest one was um, I actually had a, a passenger one time, and I'm so used to flying with pilots. I'm not used mm-hmm. to flying with, with civilians, maybe people that don't have experience, civilians, muggles, whatever you want to call them. People that don't have experience in GA airplanes. Muggles. Airplane. muggles yeah. <laughs> That's the perfect term for that. Uh, and, and, um, yeah, I'm just so used to learning to fly. And I, I, this person was about to have a panic attack, and I remember thinking, I don't know what to do. And I think that's probably the scariest thing that can ever happen. I mean, I know how to fly the airplane. I know how to talk to air traffic control. I have a hundred hours or 200 hours under me. If this person starts to freak out, I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh, Dana has the answer. What would your answer be, Dana? If somebody freaks out? Well, if the, uh, for example, if the captain freaked out, what would you do? <laughs> well, you know, in my pre-flight, pre-flight briefing all the time is, you know, if you're going to kill me, I'll knock you out. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> not, there you go. That's what you should have done, Fred. Yeah. Gra- grab a wine bottle. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> he actually flies with a spare wine bottle so he can, uh, no. There you go. Uh, wow. Jeff, what about yours, mate? Well... I don't know. Um, it, pretty much every flight, uh, I'm pretty scared. Of that. <laughs> That's why I drink so much. Hang on, let me take another sip. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Um, as I'm sure many of you have, a lot of different things that you know kind of were got your adrenaline up and that kind of thing. But the one that I just think of that really, after we landed. I didn't think that I would actually be able to stand stand up and say goodbye to the passengers. Um, and it wasn't my leg. I was a 
the pilot not flying back then. Um, now it's pilot monitoring. And I have to say, I'm not very proud of this because I was still a very um, inexperienced first officer at a major airline. And I'd flown with this captain many, many times. And I was always very impressed and very comfortable with him because I thought he had a great head on his shoulders and made great decisions and uh, was a great, you know, stick and rudder guy flying the 727, flying into Cincinnati. And there were just thunderstorms, like really just bad thunderstorms all along and all the airplanes ahead of us and behind us were concerned about it and every single airplane in front of us um, basically stopped their approach and went around and I'm assuming that that's what we're going to do too and approach control said you know Acme what are you going to do and they said just tell them we're going to continue and take a look and I went okay (laughs) like Really? I wasn't, it wasn't registering in my head that that was a decision that this guy was making because I just assumed that we were going to do as everybody else did. He kept going down, kept going down. And when we broke out, there was lightning all over the place. You could see the bolts hitting, you know, the, the, the ground very near the runway uh, was huge downpour. You could hardly see anything. The wipers are going full blast. And it was one of those situations where I was thinking to myself, I was almost frozen. I couldn't even say anything and i'm thinking i know i should say let's don't do this let's go around let's not not do this but uh, that's a a a syndrome uh, that some people have uh, called first officer itis where you just kind of let things happen and even though you know you should say something you don't and you think it's going to work out and it's going to be fine and in our case it did but uh it was terrifying and the passengers were the ones that I saw getting off the airplane. They were white. They looked like ghosts. And I thought, why did we do that? Why did I not say anything? Um, and again, I'm not proud of that at all. Uh, but uh, I, I sh- from that point on, I thought I'm never, ever going to let that situation occur uh, because I thought that, uh, you know, we were basically risking our lives and all the lives of our passengers at that point. And I should have said something. I should have said, we need to go around. You know, this is not, I'm not comfortable with this, but I didn't. And I think it was because I just couldn't accept this guy doing that. I'm thinking, well, this is not that guy. Why are we doing this? I just, uh, anyway, so that was uh, probably the scariest situation I've ever right. been in. Or someone that you do respect and have flown with and know well, and you say, well, they know what they're doing. Maybe they've been in this situation before and they've got the experience to manage it. And, you know, if you're the junior person there. It's easy to go along with that sometimes. Yep. If you, you must have seen the video of the silver fox doing his. Uh, oh, it's a video. It's an audio of the silver fox doing his VOR approach. It's a really old accident, and uh, the f- flight engineer is encouraging this captain to press on an approach when things are obviously not working well. And he's the captain. His nickname is the Silver Fox, and uh, the engineer is doing his thing and saying, "Ah, oh, the Phil Silver Fox is going to have this." And the first officer is trying to tell them both that there's something seriously wrong with the altitudes they're flying on the approach, and they're not listening to him. He's doing his best, and they're just not listening to him. And in the end, they all die because they hit the ground well before the. It was like in Alaska, I think, right? 
I, I don't remember. I just remember it, yeah. it being this audio and the captain's called the Silver Fox and the flight engineer saying, oh, he's telling the first officer basically to shut up because yeah. oh, the Silver Fox knows what's going on. He's boosting this guy's ego. And actually, they're, they're, they're all, they're, both of them are just completely out of order. And the first officer is the only person on the flight deck who knows actually that they've made a mistake. Hmm. Very sad. Wow. But we all learn from that, Jeff. And, uh, yeah. Luckily, you've got a lesson. Yeah, there it worked. You'll worked out for us. Yeah. But you know, if you could just go back and do it over again, you'd say never again. You know, I'm never going to let that happen again. Yeah. But uh, of all the people, it was just like that's the sharpest guy that I've ever flown with, and he's the one that led me down that primrose path. Always got to be careful. That's interesting. Isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Oh, excuse me. The beer is talking. Um, let's, uh, continue on with the next piece of feedback. And this is an interesting one sent to us by our good friend, Liz Piper. And it's an article from the balance, thebalance.com, uh, written by Serena Houston. And the title is can pilots have successful relationships again? Can pilots have successful relationships? And we're not going to read the whole thing here. But we'll include a link to it in the show notes. Um, and it's, it's a very well-written and very well-done article. Uh, she interviewed some airline pilots. And I'll, I just uh, uh, highlighted some of the uh, comments in the uh, article here just to, say, just to talk a little bit about it. But, uh, for instance, how hard can it be to fly around the world indulging in drinks at hotel bars with fellow crew members? Uh, for an unlucky number of pilots, their relationships or marriages end due to one or more of these challenges, um, which lead to misunderstandings. So, in other words, they're saying that uh, even though it sounds like we have a, uh, what do we always say? Uh, uh, the lifestyle. Living the dream. Living, yeah, living the dream. <laughs> or uh, I can't think of the uh, the term that I use. The uh, Anyway. Um, just an incredible lifestyle that we lead the jet setting lifestyle, but um, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> we, yeah, we're, we sometimes fly to places around the world that are exotic and, and uh, you know, just beautiful um, uh, locations and uh, just incredible experiences. But um, the other side is the, is the ugly side that nobody really sees. And the fact that we're away from home for so much of our time and, um, and anyway, this, uh, article goes in and talks about, uh, you know, pilot divorces and everything else. And interestingly, I thought, um, the two of the, uh, air, airline pilots that, uh, Serena interviewed were female pilots and they, you know, basically said the same exact thing. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female husband or wife or whatever partner you are. Um, it's, um, it's tough on relationships. What do you think? Yeah, I thought I, I thought it was an excellent written uh, written article, and and I, and I actually shared that with uh, both my um, significant other, my wife, and uh, a few of my choice friends to give them an idea what it's like to be a pilot because it was it's pretty much right on the money on, on the day day in day out uh, what we do, and it's not all fun and games, especially. Uh, uh, you know, for us domestic guys and girls, we, you know, we, we work real hard. You know, I only just got done flying a three-day trip, came home, and it was an easy three-day trip, but it was very taxing because I was up late every night. 
And uh, so I came home and I went to sleep. But, you know, most most family, uh, I can I can see where a, a, a wife or a husband would would be upset if after you know, come back from three days being away from home, they think you're in a hotel room getting rest and having fun. And then you, know, you come home. And the next thing what they will, they do is is they have the honey do list. They have the kids they want you to take care of. And and they don't understand why when you get home, you want to go home, you know, come home and take a nap. It's because you're tired. And you, it's it's hard work and uh, it, it can cause a lot of problems. Yeah. So this this article, uh, if anybody that's listening, uh, take take time to read it. It's an excellent, excellent article. And it's an important thing for you to read if you're somebody who's considering about uh, considering doing this job for a living, because it you know many of us see all the the upsides of doing this for a career, but you know uh, you you don't e- either you don't see or you overlook or look the other way of the uh, the dark side or the the downside to this kind of a career. I can see a few of the world's smallest violins coming out uh, from some <laughs> people. Um, Fred made a good point. There are plenty of careers that uh, yeah. have our kind of uh, working hours, mm-hmm. uh, our kind of time away from home, uh, our kind of stress levels, uh, and the need to, uh, you know, when you do get home, you, you can't engage because you've just been working at 100% for so long that you just need to have some downtime. And it's very hard for our spouses to understand. Um, I was very lucky. I uh, married my wife um, when I was already an Air Force pilot, so she knew exactly what she was getting herself in for. And uh, to be fair, moving to the civil world is uh, is a lot easier. So, uh, you know, our, our home life actually improved uh, when I um, came out of the military. Um, but it, it is tough. And But we're not the only um, profession that has these problems. So I think you'll find that there are an awful lot of uh, goal-driven uh, professions where people uh, will push themselves to the nth degree uh, to get their job done, um, where they uh, will have suffered from the same problems uh, back at home. Don't get me wrong. This is honestly probably the best job anyone could ever have by far. You know, we, we sit here and we complain, but, uh, you know, certainly uh, it, it is, uh, it's an awesome, awesome uh, uh, Well. I don't know, Jeff. I I watched that movie Dumb and Dumber, and I thought the job of uh, greasing up the um, uh, girls in the netball team, or was it the. uh, (laughs) I'm not trying to think. That sounds like a good job. Suntan lotion on the beach volleyball (laughs) team. I'm trying to remember what that was. That that sounded a pretty good job. Hey, you pilots, quit your whining. Yeah, for those for those with doubts, I'd like to refer you to the Miami Rick Instagram feed, full of uh, workout pictures, sunsets, and uh, beautiful city shots. Yeah, I, good, it's good, all glamorous. Good yeah, it's all on the surface. It's all glamorous. That's the word no, I was looking for. It's a glamorous lifestyle. Yes. I mean, what what other job do, you know do you get that when you walk off the airplane they play your theme music for you? There's legions of people waiting for you. I mean, there's some amazing advantages here, guys. I think you're selling this short. I really do. <laughs> Steph. Oh no, I was just gonna say, you know, agree with what. Uh, Nick said, Fred had said, because there are a lot of jobs out there that are like this, too, where people are away from home, even if they're not flying all around the country or all around the world. Um, you only have to go, you know, 20 minutes down the road and lock yourself in an office all day and be on business calls and meetings or, um, you know, work in a hospital for 30 hour shifts at a time. And yeah, there's there's a lot of jobs out there that people are away from home. And when you get home, you're just not able to participate as fully as you might like to. And it's hard if you're significant other or spouse is not in the same field or 
does not have a good understanding of what your job may entail to to have empathy and sympathy for that. So that's um, true. I think one of the one of the good or one of the better um, paragraphs of this article uh, reads, Sarah E. is a first officer for a major airline. She says it's hard for outsiders to understand what pilots go through. It's hard for people who don't live the airline life to understand it. They think that while we are away, that we're on vacation and partying. It's difficult to convey the amount of work we do. It's fatiguing and challenging, especially for a wife and a mother. Sleeping in a hotel and living out of a bag isn't the most fun, but, and this is the best part, we are pilots and have a passion for what we do. It's in our blood, and it's part of who we are. So, anyway, you should check out this uh, very well-written article, again, from thebalance.com. Thank you, Liz, for sending it, and, uh, yeah, definitely worth a read. It ain't boring, I ain't going. Joel sent some feedback, audio feedback. Hello, my name is Joel. I am from India. My ambition is to become a commercial airline pilot. So, will you please tell me which is the best flight schools in Canada? Because I want to study in best flight school and I want to become a commercial airline pilot. Okay, he wants to become a commercial airline pilot, wants to know what the best flight schools are in Canada. I have no idea. Um, Perhaps somebody out there listening, uh, you might be up in Canada, you are a pilot, or you know the answer to this um, question that Joel has. So, if you do. Does Fred know? Huh? Fred? I've only been been to two flight schools in Canada. They've both been amazing. there's probably a little bit of a difference though. The, the larger airports um, where there's commercial traffic usually have landing fees uh, in Canada. And so the smaller schools tend to be a little bit cheaper. Uh, if you fly in Quebec, you get to do it in both French and English, which is really cool. Again, I know there's a whole discussion around that in the last episode, but there, uh, you know, it's, it's always nice to see maybe a little bit of variety like that. Um, if you go to the rest of Canada, it's usually only in English. But I, I would assume that uh, flight schools in Canada have exactly the same standards as well as uh, curriculum and, and, and everything else, oversight that they do in the uh, in the United States. I would say pick a city that you think you want to go to. I mean, Montreal is awesome. It's 80 degrees in the winter. Um there's beautiful places in Alberta as well that you can go to in the summer. Maybe did, not so did much. Did you say 80 degrees in the I, I, winter? I, I caught myself there. It's 82 <laughs> degrees in the summer. It snows <laughs> in the winter. <laughs> Montreal, are you talking about? I was like, wow, he's really slaying <laughs> Montreal. I mean, I, 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 it's I, a I tropical paradise in Canada. <laughs> been brainwashed. No, I, I did my uh, my Cessna checkout in Montreal. And I remember the guy handing me a broom, like a full-size broom. And he goes, go get snow off the airplane. Um but uh, no, I, I would imagine I, I would pick a place I like, like Vancouver. I think Toronto probably had Toronto's probably an extremely busy airspace, probably very expensive. And so I'd pick a place that's affordable, uh, that that's beautiful. And I would imagine that I would imagine that the quality of the instruction is, is just about the same as anywhere else in, in North America. The procedures will be the same. The language is a little bit different. Uh, they speak ICAO in Canada. So there's a little bit of difference in the radio work. Uh, but otherwise, and in the airspace, but otherwise, uh, I, I would imagine that you get the same quality flight training you would in the, in the U.S. Excellent. Thank you. And if you're listening and you, you have some uh, recommendations for Joel, um, please send them to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. 
Ruben writes, this is my first time submitting feedback. I'm a private pilot in the UK and I started listening to the show whilst listening or sitting on ski lifts over the winter ski season, having initially thought, why would anyone listen to a three hour podcast? And now I'm hooked. The Plain Tales segment is brilliant, and I really enjoyed reading Instruments of Darkness, The History of Electronic Warfare, following Nick's recent episode. Thank you for the recommendation. An event you and your listeners might be interested in, Sunday, the 26th of June, was the annual Project Project Propeller reunion, an event for World War II aircrew who are flown from all over the UK in light aircraft by volunteer pilots. It is an incredible event that began in 1999, and I've had the privilege of being a volunteer pilot a number of times. Last year was a bit of a washout, with only a fraction of pilots making it by air, although some made the journey by road. The weather this year was better, but still a significant challenge. However, the majority managed to make it to Gloucestershire? How do you say that, Nick? Gloucestershire? Gloucestershire. I'm loving this. Keep going, folks. Just say it. How do you say that? Gloucestershire. I'm sorry. I read too many. Gloucestershire. I read too many. Gloucestershire. It's late. Okay. How about Gloucestershire? Formerly Staverton. How did I do with that one? Staverton. Staverton. Excuse me. I should yeah, le- let Nick yeah. read this why, one. Why are we reading this? Yeah. Well, you should have done, but I don't know where it is now. Uh, that's right. With over 90 airplanes and over 150 veterans in attendance, I had the pleasure of flying a former gunner who took the controls and flew the Piper Arrow up until we hit low cloud by B-R-I-Z-E. Breeze? Bryce Norton. Prize, dang it. Which required a short diversion into Wickham before continuing. That's very good. You got that one right. Oh, yes. Wait a minute. Where's my bell? <laughs> Thank you. It's an amazing event, which takes so many volunteers from the organizers, air traffic, the marshalers, catering, transport, entertainment. But it is fantastic to see the air crew together. Only they can relate to a world that is so far removed from what we know today. Maybe Captain Nick could make it next year. I'm sure he could borrow an Acme Red plane for the day. And then he sent us some links to Project Propeller, which sounds like a just a, uh, an amazing event. And uh, we'll put those in the show notes as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no problem. In fact, I, I, I have one of those Acme Red Airplanes parked in my backyard because we've got too many now and they had a few left over. So yeah. Yeah, I could borrow it any time I want. No problem at all. Excellent. And uh, I, just, I just love the use of the word aeroplane. It's just yeah. gorgeous. <laughs> I like that. I like that it caught my attention because Jeff actually read it as aeroplane. <laughs> it's a big old aeroplane. Aeroplane, big old jet aeroplane. No, that's not it. Yeah, <laughs> why? Uh, next time I'm going to practice uh, pronouncing these English place names. Uh, that would be fine, but we actually prefer it the way it is. It's a lot more, a lot more entertaining. A lot more entertaining. <laughs> oh. As I sit here in my hotel, lonely, all by myself, no one else around. I look back on the day's event and I wonder, 
What could have been? What should have been? What did I do wrong? Everything started out just fine. A great visual approach. Great conversation with the tower. There was a slight wind, only slight, but it was enough. I couldn't help it. I tried my best. But that asphalt is so hard. I'd done it a thousand times, maybe more, two thousand times. But today was not my day. I know I have to face the passengers. What will they say? Will they hate me? Will they scoff at me? Will they think me the fraud? Oh well. That was deep. See what we have to go through in our our career as an airline pilot? Very deep. <laughs> that was a great production. I enjoyed that. That was that was Steve. Captain Steve, the guy that does the how I got here. Um pieces uh, very well done well done Steve that was nice <laughs> he's a very creative guy love that thank you Steve we'd, we'd like to hear more of those um, speaking of how I got here this is Miami Hick sorry I hadn't been on in a while but my grandpappy he passed into the great beyond I've been taking it kind of hard because I feel like it was my fault we was at the hospital and he was in desperate need of blood and I, I could not remember his blood type but I gotta admire his spirit all the way up to the end he kept telling me be positive be positive so <laughs> I've been taking it kind of hard I'm down here at uh, Joe's Bar and Grill and I wanted to do a little episode of this is how I got here <laughs> I was on my layover, come out of the hotel. And I took a left, went down about two blocks across the street, and there's Joe's Bar and Grill. And this is how I got here. <laughs> Just kidding. Miami Hick over and out. <laughs> Be That's freaking awesome. Uh. <laughs> I go, Frank. Oh, I love it. Oh nice man, nice one, Hick. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, somebody in the last show was talking about they they need their their miss their Miami Hick. Well, whoever that was. <laughs> I hope there it is. I hope you enjoyed that. That's ten shows worth. That was brilliant. <laughs> oh, we love you, man. That was awesome. That <laughs> How was I great. got here? Well, I went out this way. <laughs> 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 uh, 
so good. Maybe we should go with something more, more serious, like this week's installment of Wooden Wonders, actually Plain Tales, entitled Wooden Wonders and Aluminium Overcast, Part 1. Old Pilot's Plain Tales, Wooden Wonders and Aluminium Overcast, Part 1. When taking the fight to Hitler during the Second World War, two air forces took radically different approaches. Both produced new aircraft with a very similar bomb load, but one was machined from metal, bristled with defensive armament, and carried a crew of ten whilst the other was made of wood and canvas, built by piano makers, and carried a crew of two. As the war approached across in the United States, the Air Corps was looking for an aircraft that would carry a useful bomb load at 10,000 feet and 200 knots for 10 hours. Boeing, Douglas and Martin would conduct a fly-off and the Army Air Corps were very interested in Boeing's Model 229 despite the evaluation aircraft crashing when it took off with its gust lock still engaged and it being almost twice the cost of the Douglas aircraft. It was, however, legally disqualified from the competition but not before a Seattle Times reporter had started calling it a flying fortress. The Fortress was a four-engined heavy bomber that used General Electric Turbo superchargers on its right cyclone engines. Its robust all-metal construction gave it an empty weight of over 36,000 pounds, around 16.3 metric tons, and its bomb load was 4,500 pounds for missions over 800 miles. Renowned for its defensive armament, it had machine guns positioned at the nose, tail, with four others at the mid-fuselage point, an upper, a lower, and two from the waist. Following the discovery of a legal loophole, production of the aircraft, now designated the B-17, went ahead, and a number entered service for operational evaluation. Although more were requested, by Pearl Harbor, less than 200 were in service. The aircraft went through various improvements until it bristled with 13 guns, including remote chin and ventral turrets. This was a formidable defensive power, but even more so when combined with the firepower of an entire bomb group formation flying in a combat box. Luftwaffe fighters couldn't attack without dozens of machine guns engaging them from many aircraft. Such a tactic, however, relied on individual aircraft not evading as the entire formation had to fly constantly in a straight line. The B-17 was noted for its ability to absorb battle damage and still reach its target and bring its crew home safely. Wally Hoffman, a B-17 pilot, said, The plane can be cut and slashed almost to pieces by enemy fire and bring its crew home. The Luftwaffe assessed that it took around 20 hits by 20mm shells to bring down the B-17, and on average their pilots only hit with about 2% of shots fired. 
This meant that a fighter had to fire around 1,000 rounds to be effective, and they usually carried only half that. To cope with the threat that the BE-17 represented, changes were made such as the Focke-Wulf doubling its complement of cannons. Whilst the combat box formation improved loss rates, it presented a rich target for flak, and fighters modified their tactics to include high-speed slashing attacks and frontal engagements. As a result, the B-17's loss rates were as high as 25% on some early missions. On the first raid on the ball-bearing factories at Schweinfurt, 36 out of 291 aircraft were lost, killing 200 men, and it wasn't until the advent of long-range fighter escorts, particularly the P-51 Mustang, did the B-17 become strategically potent. However, despite extended fighter cover and improved defensive firepower, the tactics of daylight bombing incurred a punishing loss rate. From the second Schweinfurt attack, 650 men did not return and out of 291 bombers, only 33 landed undamaged. Other raids also became notorious. In October 1943, the 8th Air Force alone lost 176 bombers, and in January the next year, similar losses were to occur. Albert Speer, in his book Inside the Third Reich, commented that there were 300 King Tiger tanks at Munich Rail Station waiting to be moved to the front, but because of raids on German oil factories, they had neither the railways nor the fuel to move them. However, those raids on the oil factories took their toll. In total, 922 B-17s were lost, with nearly 10,000 men killed, wounded or captured. With the loss rates that the B-17 suffered in the European theatre, some bomber groups suffered from morale problems. With death rates from single raids rising to the hundreds, it took strong leadership from the group commanders to pull their units back into a fighting force that could both protect itself and inflict meaningful damage on the enemy. However, in February 1944, the third raid on Schweinfurt highlighted what was to become known as the Big Week. The Mustangs and Thunderbolt escorting fighters had been equipped with extra long-range tanks that could accompany the bombers through the whole mission. The fighters reduced the loss rate to below 7%, but this still meant that 247 B-17s would be lost that week. The combined bombing strategy that the RAF and 8th Air Force took to the enemy was winning. It ensured that day and night targets were being attacked and the Luftwaffe had no rest, but it was taking a terrible toll in men and machines. The Flying Fortress became a symbol of the tenacity of the United States, a stubborn willingness to defeat the enemy, and its pilots loved it. It was preferred to the B-24 for its greater stability and ease of formation flying. It was also less vulnerable to damage and it flew better with a failed engine, making it back to base on numerous occasions despite extensive damage, such that its durability became mythical.
The B-17, named All-American, survived having had its tail almost completely severed, but it returned safely, giving rise to the saying, coming home on a wing and a prayer. Other aircraft also gained great fame. Memphis Bell was one of the first B-17s to complete an entire tour of duty of 25 missions. An old 666 was flown by the most highly decorated crew in the Pacific Theatre. Rose's Riveters was the lone surviving 100th Group B-17 to come home from the raid against Munster and return to its base at RAF Thorpe Abbotts. It did so, two engines dead, the intercom, an oxygen system inoperative, and a large ragged hole in the right wing. Along with the remarkable stories of aircraft survival came stories of the men who flew them. 17 B-17 crew members received the highest military award given by the United States, the Medal of Honor. Notable amongst them was Brigadier General Frederick Castle, the air commander of over 2,000 bombers on a strike, who died at the controls so that his crew could escape the crippled aircraft, and Second Lieutenant David Kingsley, who tended his injured crew before unhesitatingly giving his parachute to another, thereby giving his life. Perhaps one of the best documented was a desperate flight of survival by Lieutenant Edward Mitchell. The story of his bravery lies within his citation. For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity above and beyond the call of duty while serving as a pilot of a B-17 aircraft on a heavy bombardment mission to Germany, April the 11th, 1944, the group in which First Lieutenant Mitchell was flying was attacked by a swarm of fighters. His plane was singled out and the fighters pressed their attacks home recklessly, completely disregarding the Allied fighter escort and their own intense flak. His plane was riddled from nose to tail with exploding cannon shells and knocked out of formation with a large number of fighters following it down, blasting it with cannon fire as it descended. A cannon shell exploded in the cockpit, wounded the co-pilot, wrecked the instruments and blew out the side window. First Lieutenant Mitchell was seriously and painfully wounded in the right thigh. Hydraulic fluid filmed over the windshield, making visibility impossible, and smoke filled the cockpit. The controls failed to respond, and 3,000 feet were lost before he succeeded in levelling off. The radio operator informed him that the whole bomb bay was in flames as a result of the explosion of three cannon shells, which had ignited the incendiaries. With a full load of incendiaries in the Bombay and a considerable gas load in the tanks, the danger of fire enveloping the plane and the tanks exploding seemed imminent. When the emergency release lever failed to function, First Lieutenant Mitchell at once gave the order to bail out and seven of his crew left the plane. Seeing the bombardier firing the navigator's gun at the enemy planes, First Lieutenant Mitchell ordered him to bail out as the plane was liable to explode any minute. When the bombardier looked for his parachute, he found that it had been riddled with 20mm fragments and was useless. First Lieutenant Mitchell, seeing the ruined parachute, realised that if the plane was abandoned, the bombardier would perish and decided that the only chance would be a crash landing. 
completely disregarding his own painful and profusely bleeding wounds, but thinking only of the safety of the remaining crew members, he gallantly evaded the enemy, using violent evasive action, despite the battered condition of his plane. After the plane had been under sustained enemy attack for fully 45 minutes, First Lieutenant Mitchell finally lost the persistent fighters in a cloud bank. Upon emerging, an accurate barrage of flak caused him to come down to treetop level, where flak towers poured a continuous rain of fire on the plane. He continued into France, realising that at any moment a crash landing might have to be attempted, but trying to get as far as possible to increase the escape possibilities if a safe landing could be achieved. Mitchell flew the plane until he became exhausted from the loss of blood which formed in the floor in pools, and he lost consciousness. The co-pilot succeeded in reaching England and sighting an RAF field near the coast. Mitchell finally regained consciousness and insisted on taking over the controls to land the plane. The undercarriage was useless. The Bombay doors were jammed open. The hydraulic system and altimeter were shot out. In addition, there was no airspeed indicator. The ball turret was jammed with the guns pointing downwards and the flaps would not respond. Despite these apparently insurmountable obstacles, he landed the plane without mishap. Edward Mitchell's bravery seemed only to be matched by the strength of his remarkable aircraft. Another Medal of Honor winner, Snuffy Smith, however, was not a typical hero, as he quickly gained a reputation as a stubborn and obnoxious airman who did not get along well with the others. Consequently, it was six weeks before he was assigned his first combat mission. When he finally got airborne, Star Sergeant Smith's bomber was hit, rupturing the fuel tanks and igniting a massive fire in the centre of the fuselage. The damage to the aircraft was severe. Systems had failed and the very structure of the aircraft was at risk. When Smith's ball turret lost power, he scrambled out to assist the other crew members. Three bailed out, but Smith tended to two others who were seriously wounded. The heat from the fire was so intense that it began to melt the fuselage, threatening to break the plane in half. For nearly 90 minutes, Smith alternated between shooting at the attacking fighters, tending his wounded crew members and fighting the fire. To starve the fire of fuel, he threw burning debris and exploding ammunition through the large holes that the fire had melted in the fuselage. After the fire extinguishers were exhausted, Smith finally managed to put the fire out, in part by urinating on it. Staff Sergeant Smith's bomber reached England and landed at the first available airfield where it broke in half as it touched down. The bomber had been hit with more than 3,500 bullets and pieces of shrapnel. As a final touch, Smith was doing KP duty the week that he was awarded the Medal of Honor as punishment for arriving late to a briefing. For the United States, the B-17 was a versatile aircraft that served in dozens of units and in many theatres of combat throughout World War II. However, its main contribution was in Europe, where its shorter range and smaller bomb load didn't hamper it. However, during the time the 8th Air Force operated in Europe, over 3,300 B-17s would be lost but their bomb groups would have dropped half a million tons of ordnance on the enemy. 
Despite its limitations, however, more than 12,000 would be produced to serve the American forces and many other countries around the world. Production ceased in 1945. This is a story of two aircraft, and whilst Boeing was constructing an armoured porcupine, across the Atlantic, Jeffrey de Havilland was taking a different approach to his bomber's design. But to find out about that, you'll have to listen to the next instalment of The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. Ooh, nice teaser. <laughs> wow. We all like to be teased, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> what an amazing airplane and uh, amazing stories. I, I, I must admit, when I when I started uh, investigating the B-17, and it was Dana that uh, really kind of put me on a bit because he mentioned it was his favorite aircraft from World War II. Yes. Uh, I um, had no concept of the number of uh, Medal of Honor winners. And uh, um, Fred has just reminded me that uh, when a Medal of Honor winner walks into a room, he is the most senior person in that room, uh, even the president. Uh, will kowtow, will bow to him, will salute him. Um, uh, so that's a remarkable uh, award and a remarkable achievement. To, for one force to get 17 Medal of Honours uh, uh, awards is just incredible. It just goes to show the um, the, the quality and the, uh, the uh, determination of the men that flew those aircraft. Yeah. And if you guys ever get a chance to get up close to one, the the... the the craftsmanship that went into the airplane is incredible. I mean, the, this is a plane that they were mass manufacturing for war. The rivets are all straight. The fabric is cut perfectly. The the, the, the pilot seats are, are hand-formed over a jig. And, it, it I mean, it's handmade. Um, the, the quality and the, the robustness of these things, is it, you, you could feel it when you get up close to the airplane. So if you guys ever got a chance to spend a little bit of time with one, look look at the details. It's it, it, incredible. Wow, I've never been up close to one, but I hope no, so. No, I'd love to have the opportunity. I'd love to see it. I, I'm sure it's a very imposing airplane. Um, well, you know, and, and uh, there are two places very recently that I visited that you can get pretty darn close to uh, the 17. That's, uh, I mentioned uh, the uh, World War II Museum in New Orleans, which is a fantastic uh, museum. And then recently when I was in Dayton, they had a, a very nice display of the uh, 17 sitting right there so it's it's it always been an impressive aircraft to me um i know we talked about it a long time ago uh nick and i about uh, which aircraft was you know the english uh your english version you know which is the nighttime bomber the you know the b-17 the lancaster uh, that would be but yes yep yeah funnily enough um, I, I don't compare it because the lancaster had uh, quite a different bomb load I compare the B-17 with uh, the Wooden Wonder, the Mosquito. Yeah, true, true. And and, and but it it was just as you just mentioned, it was a a very durable, very uh, rugged, and very uh, um, fairly reliable aircraft for most of the air crews. Even though they lost a lot of them, you know, you you didn't have fighter cover. And, and one thing you didn't talk about was uh, the influence of the the uh, uh, it, of course, it wouldn't be talked about in this, but you know the, the dramatic drop and loss of aircraft once the uh, Mustang came about in the war. Um, yeah, that really yeah, that, played a big no, difference. That's exactly right. I, I think I mentioned that uh, when the, the initial sorties, uh, the loss rates were up to twenty-five percent, 
But on the big week when the B-17 had uh, full fighter cover with uh, the B, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, Mustangs and the Thunderbolts with extended fuel tanks that could cover them the entire trip, their loss rate went down to around 7%. So that was a considerable change. And I'm sorry if I missed that because a couple of times and tonight my Google Hangouts have just gone ahead and dropped off. So, um, oh, you don't have your Hangout drop off, mate. That's dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that could be it's painful. Actually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, an, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's just not hanging out very well. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, no, no, I th- thanks, Dana, because uh, the B 17 is, uh, you know, the Flying Fortress is, is a remarkable thing. Uh, it was a Boeing airplane and they marketed it wonderfully. And despite the fact they managed to crash their only demonstration aircraft in the fly off, um, which I thought was a bit of a sad event, um, they, the aircraft was obviously admired and loved by the American military, which is why. Uh, it became one of the, the the best and most wonderful um, aircraft in the Second World War, the best known and most loved, I think is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and to fly off, did, uh, I, I kind of missed that too. Did did you mention the reason why it crashed? Yeah, because they left the gust locks in. Yeah, the gust locks in. Yeah, yep. terrible yep. pre-flight. Hey, well done, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. We've covered that before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, another... Yeah. Uh, Another excellent job. Yes. Oh, th- thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. But really, this is a tribute to the guys that flew in that aircraft. And I know there are still a few left alive. And, uh, you know, I, I would take my proverbial hat off to them. They, they were brave men doing a, a, a appalling job in the most dire of circumstances. And uh, they deserve uh, every accolade the world can give them. I look forward to part two. Yeah, the wooden wonder. The lumber, the, what are they? Uh, the lumber. Uh, oh God, I've forgotten the, the lumber and loser. No, the no. Uh, the lumber loping, the loping lumber, or something they call it. The wooden one of the loping lumber, uh, and there's something. Anyway, listen next week. You'll find out. Okay, we'll, we'll all know, find out. We'll know for even sure. Even Nick. Yes. Yeah. Even me. <laughs> I can't remember because it was only a few days ago. I did <laughs> hey. This is important, and I want to make sure that we uh, mention this on today's show, and I hope that it's not too late. And I know that most of you who this may affect are probably already fast asleep and uh, may may not hear this before this weekend. I'll uh, forward this email to Carlos and Matt and uh, make sure that they... Uh, you know, somehow put this information out there, but I received, or we received some feedback from Joe. He said, hello, Captain Jeff and the APG crew. I'll be attending this weekend's Royal International Air Tattoo, Riyadh, 2017 at RAF Fairford in the United Kingdom. I'm an air crew member with one of the U.S. Air Force displays at the air show. I hadn't heard any mention of the event in recent episodes. It is billed as the world's greatest air show by the promoters with eight full hours of flying displays each day and hundreds of static aircraft. It should be quite a show indeed. And Joe, and he told us only to refer to him uh, with his first name uh, because of restrictions that they have with social media and such. Um, He is a crew member on the 
Osprey, the CV-22 Osprey aircraft, which is an amazing airplane. And I asked him, I sent him feedback um, once he sent in this. I said, would it be okay for those who are attending to come up to you and meet you and mention that they're part of the APG community or PTUK community? And he said, oh, absolutely. So um, if you want to meet a crew member on the Osprey, please uh, you know, look for Joe and tell him that you're part of the APG slash PTUK community. Very cool. And I know we definitely have listeners of both shows that are attending. I think weekend. that isn't, um, aren't the PTUK going to do something live while they're there or, or not? Is that, or they're just, I, I know they're going to there, say, right? but I didn't, I couldn't remember off the top of my head. So yeah, I couldn't either. if you're wondering, go listen to their show because the they will give episode. you all the details. Yes. Yeah. So again, um, if, if you are going or you know somebody that is, please tell them to look for the Osprey and look uh, for Joe and let him know that we you heard his feedback on our show. And um, yeah, I think that'll be uh, exciting. Okay. And let's see, Ivor, where's the complaint department? Um, um, yeah, this, is I don't a, know who they are. this is addressed to HR, Dr. Steph. Oh. Oh. This is just a little heads up. I know lots of your listeners like a meetup with you pilot chaps. Not me. Three hours of a podcast a week is more than enough. My good wife and I will be going on a couple of flights to exotic destinations, question mark, later this year. And we certainly don't want it ruined by one of you lot turning up unannounced. For your info, we will be in the Isle of Man in early August then Los Angeles in November. The one exception is the delightful pilot Pip, who is married to one of our beautiful Manx maidens. Is that right? Manx? Would you say it like that? Perhaps. Uh, yes, you would, Jeff. And uh, people from Manx have three tails. Oh. Like plain tails? No. <laughs> well, yeah, but three of them. Okay. I mean, that, that's kind of <laughs> weird. I mean, most people don't have any. Yeah. But they have. Three tails. Okay. Manx. No idea what he's talking about, but okay. The Manx cat. Okay. Uh -huh. Well, uh, Google it, old chap. No, I know the Manx cat, but I didn't know they had three tails. I believe they do. Oh, uh, interesting. I might be wrong, but or I thought the they, right. I thought they didn't have any tails. I'm thinking oh, of a well. different cat, maybe. Um, well, uh, he goes on. Right. Sadly, Mister Safety and I were in the Isle of Man at the same time last year, and didn't find out until afterwards. This was the week following something called Bombra. I believe Pip is off to God's waiting room this year. I think he's referring to Florida. Looking forward to a peaceful vacation, as you chaps call it. Keep up the good work. Love and kisses, Ivor McDonald. Thank you, Ivor. Uh, we'll forward this to HR and the complaint department. Fair enough. I <laughs> uh, love his sense of humor. Yes. I'm Well, I'm assuming it's a sense of humor. Uh, I, you know... I'd like to think it is, but okay. I'll look forward to more feedback to confirm that or not. <laughs> okay. H Let HR welcomes your feedback. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, you're quite right, Jeff. Uh, the Manx cat doesn't have any tails. Oh, okay. <laughs> the three. I knew we went from three to zero. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it obviously lost three on the way. I I'm going to try and find out where the three comes from. <laughs> Give me a moment. <laughs> hey, Fred, cut them off. <laughs> <laughs> 
to the fridges now. It's just, There's nothing you can do. It's too late. I've taken over the apartment. I can't really hide anything. <laughs> oh, shoot. Um, Andre from hmm, Sweden. There we go. Uh, he says, first of all, thank you for a really great podcast. My name is Andre. I'm from Sweden and I'm aiming to join one of Sweden's two flight schools paid by the state soon. I try to read and learn as much as possible to get a fair and realistic picture of the whole aviation industry. I've got one question for you, or, well, I've got many questions, but let's just stay with this one. While listening to the radio traffic between pilots and the ATC, whether it's in a video, a podcast, or just on the website liveatc.net, it's always hard to understand what they're saying to each other. They speak so fast. And some of the foreign pilots speak English with heavy accents. How do pilots remember and then repeat all of the instructions from ATC? Is it something they learn from experience, training, or both? Best regards, Andre Burkholz from Sweden. You nailed it. <laughs> it's experience and training. Um, and I think I'd probably put most emphasis on experience. Once you know what it is that uh, people communicate with each other, you know, over and over and over again, you kind of expect to hear something and that helps you decipher uh, perhaps language barriers or accent barriers. Um, and that's, that's what I would say. What would you all say? I was going to say it's something that um, pilots are born with. It's an innate uh, feature that they can understand <laughs> Almost incomprehensible radio transmissions, garbled talk, and uh, indecipherable code. So, I'm sorry. What, I'm not even sure what she's saying. What are you saying, Steph? I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> I, I would say the Isle of Man has three legs. <laughs> so, okay. Um, <laughs> that's it. I mean, I, I thought it was three tails. We, we've moved on. Legs. We've moved on from that one. Oh, oh, dad. This okay. is Andre from Sweden. <laughs> in all seriousness, Andre. Hey, look, uh, it's five o'clock in the morning for me. Give me a break. Um, uh, yeah, you. you uh, the tricker is to know what they're about to say. And uh, so you've got it kind of in your head. You know what they're likely to say because they're using standard phraseology, except in America. Um, <laughs> Do it so uh, you kind of, uh, when they when they say it, you, you fit the words in, you go, yep, I understand what that bloke was saying. Uh, it's when they say something unexpected, like, uh, um, <laughs> I remember trying to get everyone out of uh, Boston, and there were a whole bunch of us waiting for ta uh, taxi clearance because... Uh, um, there'd been a thunderstorm. So there are probably about 30 of us on the frequency and uh, air traffic came up and uh, gave uh, some guy's call sign because he was just basically passing continuous taxi instructions. And he, he gave this guy, uh, let me imagine who it would have been. He said probably Delta 247. And Delta 247 came back and said, uh, my finger's on the trigger. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, there was this complete blank because everyone went, what the hell? <laughs> I was going to say, do you hear how slow I talk? That's how fast I listen. <laughs> there you go. So when you say something unexpected, all hell you know, breaks loose and no one understands what the hell's going on. There's only well, two important things, clear to land and clear for takeoff. Everything else is just noise. As long as you hear that in there somewhere, you're okay. <laughs> and I was just going to say that Nick, nobody really understands what they're saying up in Boston. 
<laughs> well, I'm sure other blokes in Boston do, but about yeah, they, that, yes, they say I they do. Agree with you. <laughs> well, I've said it before and I'll say it again. We were here first, the rest of the country has an accent. So we speak proper English in the United States. That's that's what we hear. Thank you. Um, a little bit of audio feedback uh, as we get close to the end of the show here. You may have heard of this guy. Hey, Captain Jeff, uh, Captain Nick, Dr. Steph, Captain Dana, and whoever else is on the show this go around. It's First Officer Craig here, and I just want to leave some feedback on, uh, well, actually two pieces of feedback on the last episode. Um, first off, with uh, the Mokoele Airlines, I once upon a time before working for Acme Jr., uh, flew for Mokoili Airlines. Unfortunately, I was not in Hawaii doing the island hopping they do out there, but um, we were being wet leased out by a company called Southern Airways Express doing the essential air service routes into Pittsburgh. And uh, so I can attest to uh, the company and uh, the employees that I got to work with. Um, good friends with the chief pilot and flew with the direct drops as well. So I'm on a first name basis with him. And know several pilots who have flown there and are still flying there um, out in Hawaii. So if anyone um, is interested in learning more about the company from someone who actually uh, flew from Okalele Airlines, uh, feel free to reach out. Uh, I'm FO Craig on Twitter at Greenhorn CFI and uh, Craig Pizik on Facebook. So, uh, yeah, feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions about that. And uh, my second uh, thing I wanted to talk about was um, asphalt. <laughs> um, being based in DCA, um, a lot of the ramp apron area is made out of asphalt. And there's been several times already this summer where after we've been pushed out from the gate, and having started the first engine that even with a considerable amount of uh, power coming out of the engine that we try to put into it, we're stuck in a little divot and can't get out. So then we have to start the second engine to get us moving. And it's very uh, noticeable on some of the taxiways near the uh, ramp gate area that there are large divots because the asphalt's soft and in the summer heat, it gets really soft and all the heavy aircraft taxiing on it create quite large divots. And um, yeah, so I wish they would uh, move to concrete to kind of fix that problem, but I know that concrete uh, takes a lot longer to cure than the asphalt does. And at places compact and busy as DCA, I don't think they have time to put concrete all over the place. So uh, that's just my two cents on that. Um, thanks for taking my... Nope. Ah, I got cut off at the end. Thank you, Craig, for sending that in. So whose fault was it? Concrete. Asphalt. The asphalt. Thank you. Bam. I wish I had a sound effect. Oh, I do. <laughs> oh, well. Um, any uh, comments or uh, whatever to... First Officer Craig's. Uh, that's great. The resource that we have with Craig as far as uh, Mokalele, um, having had experience with that company. If anybody out there 
has any questions regarding that. I know, you know, the last program we talked about that uh, video where the um, guy, uh, I don't remember his name. Um, uh, anyway, uh, had a, like a contest going and you could possibly get your resume in there and uh, selected for uh, a pilot for Mokalele in Hawaii. And uh, I don't understand this, Jeff. I've had a slow, comfortable screw. I've had screwdrivers. I've had Harvey Wallbangers. Slow, comfortable no, I, screw. I, not tonight. I've not, had, not tonight. Go <laughs> <laughs> use I've had my ties. It ain't gonna be uh, comfortable. I can had, tell you that. Um, I've never had a Mokalele. So, what's it made of? <laughs> I'm not really sure. Pineapple, I, I think, is one of the ingredients. And rainbows. <laughs> There's a show title. Pineapples sure and rainbows. Sorry. That's <laughs> also what we call Friday night in San Francisco. Uh, um. Lake Norman, Mark, he was one of our uh, live audience, uh, one of two live audience members at uh, that show that we did in Charlotte, uh, sent this in quickly uh, from airlive.net. Alert, control tower of Eindhoven, Eindhoven Airport in uh, the Netherlands evacuated after controllers felt sick due to strange odor. Traffic was stopped during few uh, a few hours this afternoon at Eindhoven Airport uh, after the control tower was evacuated. Flights to and from Eindhoven Airport were suspended for nearly two hours after an unusual smell was detected detected in the air traffic control tower. The tower was evacuated as a precaution at around 12.30 p.m. while firefighters investigated the source of what the fire service described as an irritating substance. It turns out it was a false alarm. Captain Al of Royal Jet Airlines was among several visitors on a tour of the tower facility. A spokesperson for spokesperson for Eindhoven Airport said, quote, apparently large quantities of curry were consumed by one of the tour attendees. All flights due to take off or land after 1 p.m. on Monday were postponed or rerouted. So we're terribly sorry that... Um, they experienced this uh, anyway. I inconvenience. Inconvenience, yes. yes. This allism. <laughs> allism. <laughs> Captain Al, sorry. Yeah. We had some fun at your expense. Keep your ideas to yourself, old chap. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. Did we get them all? I think uh, we made it You through. missed one. Oh, which one? Two, two down from where you are right now. Okay. There's an audio. Uh, oh yeah. Kiwi. I, I don't know. You, yeah. you guys want to do this? I, I think he said it's a quick question, an unusually quick technical question. I think it's the last thing in the folder. So yeah, let's do it. Okay. May as well. Let's okay. Go. Here we go. Uh, some audio feedback. Take it away. Flying Kiwi. Hey, APT crew. This is a quick one from the Flying Kiwi. Um, a technical question this time, um, which I think most of you should be able to answer since you all use a cars, I think, um, I watched uh, the Sully movie for the first time, I know, I know, for the first time the other night, and um, there was a mixed audience, so I became the sort of default aviation expert, you know, like, what's an APU, why are they turning on the APU, why is that important, etc, 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 and, you know, talking about N1 and EGT and, you know, what those dials mean and rolling back and all that sort of business, and then somebody asked me, oh, well, uh, why was the ACARS recording the fact that the engine was at idle? 
And immediately I said, well, let's book. Oh, I, I actually don't know. <laughs> so um, my question for you guys is, is when the uh, Sully plane, uh, uh, A320, crashed into the Hudson, apparently, according to the movie, um, the ACARS was recording an idle um, engine speed on, I think, number two engine. Um, when both N1 and I think N2 were zero. Um, so I know a little bit about N1 and N2, you know, the um, spindle speeds in different parts of the engine, um, but not really sure why or how A cars would have an engine speed. Um, and in fact, I'm kind of confused about the whole A cars thing. I thought A cars was like a navigation and messaging tool. I didn't think it actually recorded engine parameters or anything like that, so uh, that's new on me. Um, yeah, so maybe you guys could uh, could uh, shed some light on that. Um, it was a great movie, um, although the portrayal of the FAA guys, um, sorry, the NTSB guys was a bit, you know, ham-fisted, a bit hacky, you know. Suddenly they were, you know, really grumpy and really out to prove the pilots wrong, and then two minutes later they were going, oh, you're a bunch of heroes. Uh, yeah, it was it was weird. Um, also, no mention of, of, you know, any looking into, you know, the number of birds ingested or what side the birds were or anything like that. That's the sort of thing you would expect the NTSB to, to be doing rather than going straight after the pilots. But anyway, um, uh, last but not least, uh, congratulations, Dr. Steph. Well done. I hope you have a very, very happy life together. Um, yeah, it's great. Um, really happy to hear, hear that. It's, it's, it's very good. Um, although, Captain Jeff, uh, are you worried about the lack of Patreons now? They will be fl um, fleeing in droves now that Dr. Steph has taken. You know, what's going to happen with the coffee fund? <laughs> anyway, um, Talons Douglas, oh, oh and uh, Glenn, Glenn Towler, have, uh, have fun in Oshkosh, you lucky bugger. Um, very, very jealous that you're going. Um, I'm far too poor for that sort of thing. But um, have fun. And uh, when you get back, we'll go for that flight. Cheers. Uh, Talents, Douglas. Flying Kiwi out. <laughs> Thank you, Luke. Flying Kiwi. And uh, yes, when uh, we, it, we all acted like we were really, really happy about Steph uh, becoming engaged. <laughs> but she basically just ruined all of our chances. I didn't even. She just, broke so many hearts. I, it really did. Oh, it really did. So broken. Okay. Completely broken. We all held out love, hope that I there may be someday. All the same. <laughs> <laughs> that hasn't changed. <laughs> oh. Anyway, uh, Captain Nick, do you have any um, an answer for the ACARS question regarding the engine parameters? Um, well, uh, I'm not an expert. I'm just a pilot. And you know what I do? Up, down, left, right. However, ACARS is just a transmitting medium. You can choose what you stick on it. You can use it just for uh, sending uh, text messages to ops to say, hey, wake up, you guys. There's thunderstorms here. What do I do next? And get weathers. Uh, or you can use it to transmit aircraft uh, data. You can get it to, um, you know, when you get an, uh, an ECAM warning, uh, in, an emergency warning from uh, or a system's fault from any part of the aircraft, you can get the aircraft to transmit data about that. You can get it to fire off uh, just regular routine uh, information. Uh, you can basically set it up how you want it to. So uh, if uh, you set it up, say you have an engine fault and you want it then to fire off all the data regarding that fault, 
uh, that's what it will do. And that might be how the way it was set up on Sully's aircraft, that when he got an ECAM warning saying there was an engine fault, it just started firing off data um, from that engine. Uh, so that's entirely within the remit of the airline. Uh, they decide how it's going to do it. ACAST is just the medium uh, they use. So uh, nothing particularly complicated about that. And um, why it was giving bad information, bad data, uh, who, who knows? It might be just a timing issue. It might yeah. be the fact that, uh, you know, the data they were sending was um, from one area of the engine was being misread, uh, perhaps by the engine itself, by the sensors there. Because after all, once the engine received damage, it's quite like the sensors within it receive damage. We're, we're all aware that uh, sometimes you can get a, a, a fire warning um, that uh, is because you have put an extinguisher into the cargo bay and uh, the smoke warning won't go out because now you've flooded the bay with um, uh, a fire suppressant, which is itself going to look to the fire warning detectors or the smoke warning detectors like smoke. So uh, we're aware of the limitations of the, uh, of the sensors within our aircraft, but uh, ACARS isn't. It just sends off data uh, and it's up to people interp to interpret it correctly correctly very well put Thanks. i think that's a very logical answer and i'm very impressed with somebody who has been up for what 24 hours and has had a couple of beers you sounded very intelligent fred stuck a uh, a coat hanger good <laughs> and that's about no. the only thing that's keeping me up right right now oh. <laughs> okay. ouch well yeah. Well, to be fair, it was it was fair, all very eloquent until that point. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Do my best. Yes, yeah. Dana. To, to be fair, uh, on that long of a flight, Nick, you did have a, a relief pilot, did you not? Yeah, I think it relieved himself several times. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Hey, so uh, this is awesome. Thank you, uh, Captain Nick, for. Uh, uh, making yourself available again uh, for the show and Fred for uh, picking him up and giving them that, uh, giving him that great studio space. And I look forward to hearing about your adventures tomorrow. Um, and thanks for, as always, uh, this is not the first time that Fred has been with us and uh, he is a big part of our aviation community. So, or APG community. So thank you, Fred. Fred, Craig, can I say one thing? I'm very jealous. It's got to be beautiful flying out there. Oh, uh, well, Dana, next time you're out, man, we'll take you up for you. We have a lot of fun here. Uh, I've been to San Francisco in my entire 15 years of flying once. <laughs> well, make it twice. Yes. You don't you don't have to go there just for work, right? Like you could go for yeah. You guys can non-rev out here. It's 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 you know, it's four what? and a half hours from Atlanta. It's really not that bad. You can do that? I, I've been there yeah. for that. But, yeah. <laughs> Someone's going to give me a a non-rev? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, you can well, anytime. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, Fred has made an effort to uh, sort of put the word out there. I think we're going to meet some guys. We're going to get a look around a C-17. We're going to do some fun things tomorrow. So uh, I'm nice. going to get some – we're going to go out for a little time here, and then I'm going to get some sleep. Yep. And uh, uh, we, I'm looking forward to tomorrow. I'll lost pictures, and I'll do a few uh, Patreons. By the way, Jeff, there is a Patreon in the system. I'll – I'll take a look at it and take care of it. Thank you very much Thank for that. Much, 
Always appreciate that. Um, so you're going to Nut Tree tomorrow, huh? Is that right? Is that what I hear? Yeah, just exactly. We're going right. We're going to Travis, so it's just right outside nice. of, uh, of Travis Air Force. I've Nut, been there Nut a couple Tree. of times. Perfect place for some APGs. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. A couple of people coming. Hang out, your nuts off a tree. <laughs> <laughs> we have a couple right. people coming out to meet us for lunch, and then there'll be a meetup somewhere tomorrow night in San Francisco. We just don't know where yet because we don't know when we'll be back. But we'll we'll tweet it out and we'll grab wherever we can for dinner excellent well if you want to learn more about uh today's show or any of our shows uh the crew and uh, the community and uh different ways to watch listen etc to our show head over to airlinepilotguide.com and we have apps on the ios and uh, android platforms and you can find out that information as well at the airlinepilotguide.com website Social media, we're there, of course. We are there. You can find us on Twitter at APG Crew. Um, all kinds of interesting conversations going on there. Send us stuff. We all see it. You can find our individual Twitter handles pinned to the top of the page there. And you can head over to Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Again, more information about meetups and aviation stories and things of general interest to the community. Uh, Roger, uh, bring in Hillel, please. Hillel. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. And uh, let's see... Anything else before we sign off for this episode? Oh, and just for me, a big thanks to Fred for uh, picking me up, dragging me over here, and uh, giving me his uh, web. Uh, what am I trying to say? There's a small charge for the bandwidth. That's right. Jeff will cover that. Jeff will cover that. Yeah. Yeah. Coffee fund. And the coffee fund, I'm sure, will cover the fuel fees tomorrow. We'll probably not. We'll figure it out. We'll sort that out. Yeah. I was hoping. Thanks very much, Fred. No problem. It was great hanging out with everybody tonight and until next time wishing all of you clear skies unlimited visibility and tailwinds take care and god bless cheers y'all good night bye Bye, guys good day a good, good pilot till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy oh, I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time 
But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline 